Welcome back to another Sound of Battle Cry, and today we're going to be talking about Star Wars, or if you're from New England, Star Wars. Kid, I'm going to go see some Star Wars. But uh, seriously, we're going to be talking about that today, and first of all, before I get into the show, if you're not a Christian, you're just watching this to have a big laugh because uh, you think this is going to be stupid, and I'm going to say, Star Wars is of the devil! I'm sorry to disappoint you, but that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to offer overwhelming evidence that shows that um, George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, was overwhelmingly, primarily influenced by a man named Joseph Campbell, and that uh, we're going to examine who Joseph Campbell was, what he taught, and that uh, how his philosophy has um, impacted the mythology of Star George Lucas and Star Wars, and that George Lucas himself admits that he is a teacher, and that uh, very few people will listen, young people especially, will listen to a lecture, but to a movie, uh, absolutely, they will watch a movie, and they will be taught. And so he has a big megaphone, a big platform that is a global platform in which he is able to teach people his worldview and his philosophy, which is a reflection of Joseph Campbell's philosophy. Uh, especially as reflected in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, we'll get into all that later, but I just want to say, if you're just stopping in to to have a little laugh, uh, maybe you will find some of this funny, but you will have the evidence set before you, and it cannot be disputed, okay? This isn't some willy-nilly thing that I put together here. I did a lot of research, and I put the, the notes together for this show and multiple compilations of video clips of these people admitting what they're teaching in this movie. And what what Joseph Campbell admits, his philosophy is what he teaches. It's all documented right here, okay? So you can't avoid it. Uh, you cannot refute that. Now, wh- what conclusion you draw from it, that's up to you. Uh, at the end of the show, I'll show you what I believe this whole thing is teaching. Uh, from a biblical perspective, I am a Christian, and uh, that's why I make these shows. Now, if you are a Christian watching the show... I hope to prove to you the influence of this show, uh, through the influence of this show, throughout the duration of the show, I hope to prove to you that Star Wars teaches uh, a one-world religion philosophy. It's indoctrinating people into that, that that's where we should go. That's the best solution. And um, it's preparing people to accept that. Uh, and um, I believe that the philosophies that are pushed in movies such as Star Wars and many other films are un- completely unbiblical and there's no reason why you should be going to see this movie to be entertained by it or recommending it um, because of that philosophy. Now, having said all that, let's get into the show. All right, so first we're going to start off with a clip. It's just a, um, it's not a video clip, but it's a portion of an interview that was done for Time Magazine with George Lucas. It was called Cinema of Myth and Men, a conversation between Bill Moyers and George Lucas on the meaning of the Force and the true theology of Star Wars. Yes, that's what they said, theology. Okay, so this was April 26, 1999. So this is right before, uh, you know, the, the first trilogy of Star Wars movies came out in um, the 70s. And then they made a new segment it was kind of like the prequels i guess and that came out uh i think 99 2000 they started making those again so it was right before the new one was about to drop and anyways um he asked george lucas some questions now before we get into that uh 
you know, just wanted to mention this before we move on. Uh, there is a new Star Wars movie coming out. I think it's called The Last Jedi. There's a lot of hype around that. Um, you know, if you watch clips of, of people talking about the movie and stuff like that, they the way in, that they are and the way they act about it and uh, the the excitement that people have around these movies is um it's fanatical it's it's um it's very extreme because there's a lot of childhood emotions tied in with it with net nostalgia and um it becomes basically uh religious and and some people might think that that sounds stupid but the if you look at the fervor with which people talk about this movie and celebrate it and have all the toys and and the movies and clothing and everything star wars they're obsessed with it they're absolutely obsessed with it and um to pretend like it doesn't influence people's worldviews is absolutely ignorant and ridiculous it's absurd okay so hence the necessity for this show that's why we're doing the show because we're talking about something that influences millions and millions of people across the world Okay, it's a cultural phenomenon that's been going on for 40 years. Okay, and uh, anyway, so let's get into this and see what George Lucas said, the creator of the Star Wars mythology. All right, interview. Moyer said, what do you make of the fact that so many people have interpreted your work as being profoundly religious? George Lucas said, I don't see Star Wars as profoundly religious. I see Star Wars as taking all the issues that religion represents and trying to distill them down into a more modern and easily accessible construct that there is a greater mystery out there. I remember when I was 10 years old, I asked my mother, if there's only one God, why are there so many religions? I've been pondering that question ever since. And the conclusion I've come to is that all religions are true they just see a different part of the elephant. Now let's stop elephant. Let's stop right there. Okay. Uh, obviously I disagree with the statement, but what I am trying to show you right now, before we get into, not, we're not getting into right now, an extensive refutation of what George Lucas teaches or Joseph Campbell. We will get into more of that later. Right now we are just simply documenting what they believe and that they put those beliefs into the movie. George Lucas put these beliefs, his worldview, into the Star Wars movie. It's a fact, okay? So this is what he said. This is his view. He said, I believe that all religions are true. They just see a different part of the elephant. Okay? Uh, before we move on, just a brief statement. The Bible says in John fourteen six, Jesus Christ said, I am the, the way the truth, the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So not only does the Bible teach it, but Jesus Christ specifically himself said that he was the only way that you could have a relationship with God. You had to come through Jesus Christ alone. He also said that the the path to follow him was narrow. He said, wide is the is the uh, path and wide is the gate and broad is the path. I'm sorry, that leads to destruction and many there be which go in there. So he's saying, Jesus said, most people are going to go on this wide path that leads to destruction. Uh, that's what most of the people are going to do. But few people, he said, narrow is the way 
And straight is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. It's going to be a smaller portion of people that are going to come through Jesus Christ and choose that way. And that's what the Bible teaches. Now let's continue. Moyers asked, is one religion as good as another? George Lucas said, I would say so. Okay, so now he says, one religion is good as another. They're all, they're all equally valid. Which is interesting because they contradict each other. Uh, like I said, the Bible teaches exclusivity. Teaches Jesus Christ teaches he's the only way. Uh, Islam Okay, if you do, if you look at the politically incorrect, the true version of Islam, which the Quran teaches, they believe Islam and they teach Islam is the only way. They say that Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's it. That's the only way to them. That contradicts all the other religions. So how can you say they're all as good as another and they're all saying the same thing when they these religions themselves make exclusivity uh, claims? You can't, but they have selective um, uh, analyzation of these religions. All right, let's, let's keep going. Lucas said, I would say so. Religion is basically a container for faith. How does he define faith? And faith in our culture, our world, and on a larger issue, the mystical level, which is God, which what one might describe as a supernatural or the things that we can't explain is a very important part of what allows us to remain stable, remain balanced, okay? Bill Moyer says, one explanation for the popularity of Star Wars when it appeared is that by the end of the 1970s, the hunger for spiritual experience was no longer being satisfied sufficiently by the traditional vessels of faith. Lucas said, I put the force into the movie in order to try to awaken a certain kind of spirituality in young people. Now, Let's stop right there. He said, more a belief in God than a belief in a particular religious system. Okay? A couple things I want to say about that. First of all, he talked about the force. I have an entire, entirely separate show that I put together on the force in Star Wars. Um, I need to go back and I want to tweak a couple things before I release that again. Um but just wanted to say that real quick. But having talking about the force, he said he deliberate. First of all, he admits I put the force into the movie in order to awaken spirituality in young people. He says he specifically did that. He did that intentionally to awaken spirituality in young people. So you have George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, admitting he's trying to awaken a certain kind of spirituality in young people. Targeting young people, children, teenagers, young adults, targeting them with his worldview, trying to stir something up. Okay. And he said he used the concept of the force in order to do that. All right. Now he said, and the second thing he said about that was more belief in God than a belief in a particular, any particular religious system. Okay. So what he's saying here, and he'll say this more later, is that there's no specific definition that you give it. It's not concrete like, I believe this and it has these parameters of this is exactly what I believe. There's no specific theology. It doesn't really matter what you believe in his eyes, just as it's just belief in God, a God, a force, spirituality. It doesn't matter what you believe, just some type of belief, anything except atheistic 
materialism, you know, naturalism, anything except that. Uh, that's what he's saying. All right. So he admits that. And then he says this, I wanted to make it so that young people would begin to ask questions about the mystery. What, what he means by the mystery it's mystery. <laughs> no. When he's talking about the mystery, the mystery is a concept in what are known as mystery religions. Okay? If you study that, um, this goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. All right? But let's continue. Not having enough interest in the mysteries of life to ask the question, is there a God or is there not a God? That for me is... That for me is for me the worst thing that can happen. I think you should have an opinion about that, or you should be saying, I'm looking, I'm very curious about this, and I'm going to continue to look until I can find an answer. And if I can't find an answer, then I'll die trying. I think it's important to have a belief system and to have faith. So he says, it doesn't matter what you believe, just have some type of faith, believe in something, try to look for something. Moyer says, do you have an opinion or are you looking? Lucas said, I think there is a God, no question. What that God is or what we know about that God, I'm not sure. The one thing I know about life and about the human race is that we've always tried to construct some kind of context for the unknown. Even the cavemen thought they had it figured out. I would say that cavemen understood on a scale of about one. Now we've made it up to about five. Uh, what? <laughs> now, it's funny because... He says on a scale, we we were on a one as cavemen and then now we're up to a five. Does he have the scale? Does he know like where's the 10? Uh, if it goes up to 10, how does he, what does he have to compare it to? How does he know we're at an understanding of a, about five? What does he have that to compare to? Nothing. The only thing that most people don't realize is the scale, scale, scale goes to 1 million. How do you know that? It goes to a million and we're only, we're at one and now we're at five. How does he know that? Where does he get that from? That's just his opinion. It, it, it's just taken out of thin air. It's taken out of nothing, you know? And um, and there, I'm saying that for a reason. You might say that about me, that it's just, just my opinion, but, you know, I'm going to show you that uh, there you have to have an objective standard for truth. You have to have an absolute authority for truth or else... It's just a series of conflicting opinions and feelings and, and traditions and all these other things, and you're not ever able to find the truth, okay? And I don't believe that. That's a bunch of hogwash, all right? So he says, there's a God, but what God is, I don't know, okay? So it kind of sounds like an agnostic knee surgeon, right? Or whatever. And then Moyer says, you said you put the force in Star Wars because you wanted us to think on these things. Some people have traced the notion of the force to Eastern views of God, particularly Buddhist, as a vast reservoir of energy that is the ground of all our being. Was that conscious? Lucas said, I guess it's more specific in Buddhism, but it is a notion that's been around before that. When I wrote the first Star Wars, I had to come up with a whole cosmology. What do people believe in? I had something. I had to do something that was relevant, something that imitated a belief system that has been around for thousands of years and that most people on the planet, one way or another, have some kind of connection to. I didn't want to invent a religion. Check out what he says here. I wanted to try to explain in a different way the religions that have already existed. I wanted to express it all. Okay? Now, I hope you're beginning to notice 
that um, George Lucas intentionally put his worldview, like I said, into the Star Wars movies. And he's specifically admitting right now that he was looking at religions and thinking of a way in which he could put his view of religion in Star Wars. That's exactly what he's saying. He said, I wanted to express it all, all the religions. Listen to what he says next. Moyers, Moyers said, you're creating a new myth. Are you creating a new myth? Lucas said, I'm telling an old myth in a new way. Okay, he's taking what all these religions have taught for thousands of years and he's retelling them in a new way in the Star Wars movie. That's what he's saying. Each society takes that myth and retells it in a different way, which relates to our to the particular environment they live in. The motif is the same. It's just that it gets localized. As it turns out, I'm localizing it for the planet. Uh, what did he just say? I'm localizing it for the planet. He's taking these myths putting it into a movie and broadcasting it to everyone around the planet. I'm get, I guess I'm localizing it for the end of the millennium more than I am for any particular place. Moyer said, is it fair to say in effect that star Wars is your own spiritual quest? Lucas says, I'd say part of what I do when I write is ponder a lot of these issues I have ever since I can remember. And obviously, some of the conclusions I've come to, I use in the films. So George Lucas is saying, some of the conclusions I've come to about what? His spiritual quest he puts in the films. There it is. Let's continue. Moyer said, the psychologist Jonathan Young says that whether we say I'm trusting my inner voice or using more traditional language, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, uh, two totally different things, by the way, totally different things. That's your inner voice. Okay. You just listen to your own thoughts and you think that that's, that's listening to the Holy spirit. That's two completely different things. That is absolutely wrong. And the only way you could know that is if you read the Bible, otherwise you just make up anything you want. Just make up any story out of thin air. This is this. You know, you can say, the Holy Spirit does this, and my feelings this, and the inner voice this, and you just make it up, and no one can disprove you because you have no way to prove it. Well, you do have a way to prove it. It's called the Bible, okay? The Word of God. That's what God gave us to be able to discern truth. The Bible says, thy word is truth. It is truth. That's how we can know truth. And the Holy Spirit is given to those who are born again. The inner voice, people's thoughts and and, and uh, their uh, things that they think of in their heart it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. All right. But I just wanted to say that real quick. Let's continue. He says, or if some people say I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, as we do in the Christian tradition, somehow we're acknowledging that we're not alone in the universe. Is this what Ben Kenobi urges upon Luke Skywalker when he says, trust your feelings? Once again, uh, no, trusting your feelings is not trusting the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. The complete opposite of what this guy is saying. The Bible says, don't trust your feelings. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in God instead of that. So they're two different things. 
All right, let's continue. Lucas said, ultimately, the force is the larger mystery of the universe. And to trust your feelings is your way into that. Okay. And that's why it's very different than the biblical worldview. Okay. The biblical worldview tells you not to trust your feelings. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So there's a way that you can feel right. It can seem right, but it can end in death. It can end in very disastrous ending. And, uh, you know, he says to trust your feelings is the way into the force. So it's a totally different path than the Bible says. Once Moyer says, one scholar has called Star Wars mysticism for the masses. What's mysticism? It's essentially the occult. But many people say uh, Eastern mysticism, okay? Uh, which includes Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Taoism and all this other stuff, right? But more specifically, when you talk about mysticism, it's like the inner esoteric core of these Eastern religions, uh, for instance, in Islam, they have the Sufism, the Sufis, and um, you have others that are into the more mystical aspect in um, the the Jewish religion, Judaism. They have the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah, and they practice that stuff. That's Jewish mysticism. This is the occult. It's used in witchcraft and the occult. That's all. It. That's a fact. Okay. So one scholar calls Star Wars mysticism for the masses. I wonder why they say that. And he says, you've been accused of trivializing religion, promoting religion with no strings attached. Lucas said, that's why I would hesitate to call the force God. It's designed primarily to make young people think about the mystery. There he says that again. Not to say, here's the answer. It's to think, it's to say, think about this for a second. Is there a God? What does God look like? What does God sound like? What does God feel like? How do we relate to God? Just getting young people to think at that level is what I've been trying to do in the films. What eventual manifestation that takes place in terms of how they describe their God, what form their faith takes, is not the point of the movie. Because he doesn't care. He doesn't care. That's not the point. The point is, you can believe in whatever you want, as long as it's some type of higher power, force, God, whatever you want to call it, that's all he wants. That's all that matters. It's the same thing as Freemasonry. They say that. They say that they're not a religion. Okay? Freemasonry is not a religion. It's a system of morality veiled in allegorian symbolism. Right? That's their official explanation. Okay? It's a religion. But, you know, they'll get mad at you for saying that. But why did I mention Freemasonry? Because what that's what they teach is exactly what he's teaching. They say, in order to join Freemasonry, you have to believe in a God. It doesn't matter what the God is. It could be, you could be a Jew, Muslim, a Christian, uh, a New Ager. It doesn't matter what it is. You believe some type of higher power, some type of God. They just basically don't want atheists. Okay? And you can join. That's it. That's all there is to it. And uh, so he says, what form the faith takes, that's not the point of the movie. Moyer says, and stories are the way... To ask these questions, Lucas says, when the film came out, almost every single religion took Star Wars and used it as an example of their religion. They were able to relate it to the stories in the Bible, the Quran, and the Torah. Okay? All religions were able to use it. Why is that? Because it's ambiguous and it only focuses on unifying uh, factors, uh, commonalities between religions to try to bring them all together but there's no decisive dividing doctrine they've taken all those out even though those religions 
such as Islam contain specific claims of exclusivity. They ignore that and pretend like that that doesn't exist and they say, look it, they're all basically the same. No, they're not. They're not at all. But that's what they're trying to push. Moyers says, Wendy Doniger, who is a Doniger, I don't know how to say the name, who is a scholar of mythology at the University of Chicago, says that myths are important because they remind us that our lives are real and that our... Wait a second. Sorry, I, I skipped it with my eyes. They remind us that our lives are real and our lives are not real. We have these bodies, which we can touch, but we have also have within us this omnipotent, magical world of thought. Whatever that means. Lucas says, myths, tells us, myths tell us that these stories in a way that doesn't threaten us. Okay, I'm sorry. I just butchered that. Myths tell us these old stories in a way that doesn't threaten us. There you go. They're in an imaginary land where you can be safe. Where is that? Well, what's at the beginning of the Star Wars? Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. As soon as you... There's a reason that that, those are the first words in that movie, okay? These... Dude, come on. These guys know psychology, okay? They are very intelligent people. They know that as soon as you start watching a movie... And the first thing that pops on the screen with the with the dramatic music and you're in outer space and it says a long time ago. Okay, so you got the time aspect. It's in a distant time that's far away from you in a galaxy far, far away in a place that's far away from you. You are now distancing yourself from these these people and these events. So that he says what? They're in an imaginary land where you can be safe. You are, um, as uh, Mark Hamill said in, in his interview, he said that I'm in the business of escapism. That's what we're in. When people watch these movies, they're trying to escape from their dealing with reality with their own lives. They like to take a break and escape into this fantasy land. And while they're in this fantasy land, an imaginary land where they can be safe, they are dealing and, and being confronted with these myths and these stories and they are being taught these things in a place where they feel like they can relax in this la- in this safe land and open up their minds to what is being taught whether they consciously know it or not that's exactly what's happening so he says they're in an imaginary land where you can be safe but they deal with real truths that need to be told Sometimes the truths are so painful that stories are the only way you can get them, get through to them psychologically. What I tell you, he knows how people operate psychologically. And so this is a deliberate, okay? He has a philosophy. He has a worldview, right? And he knows that the, the, um, the platform by which he can reach the most people is making a movie. And then he also knows that the way, the type of movie that he needs to make is to mask these truths that he wants to get across in these uh, fantasy stories so that people let their guard down and intake these truths and worldviews, so-called truths that he's trying to teach. 
So he knows what he's doing. Moyer said, when Darth Vader attempts Luke to come over to the Empire side, the dark side, offering him all that the Empire has to offer, I am taken back to the story of Satan taking Christ to the mountain and offering him the kingdoms of the world. If only he will turn away from his mission. Was that conscious in your mind? Now listen to what George Lucas said. Yes. He just said yes. That story has also been retold. Buddha was tempted in the same way. No, he wasn't. Okay. (laughs) This is what these guys try to do. They totally butcher uh, what the Bible actually teaches. And they try to say, yeah, it's just teaching the same thing. No, it's not. It's very specific what the Bible teaches. And we're going to get into that, how Jesus Christ is totally different than all these other uh, gods of these other religions. But nevertheless, he admitted when Darth Vader tempts Luke to come to the dark side, he said he was envisioning the same story of when Satan was tempting Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? He's portraying a satanic, a character of Satan on Darth Vader and a character of an archetype of Jesus Christ on Luke Skywalker. But there's a twist to it because they always try to reverse things on you because they're trying to make Luke Skywalker like he's the good one. He's the savior. Uh, but what is his name? Skywalker. He walks in the sky. He's in the air, right? Well, you know what one of the names for the devil is in the Bible? The prince of the power of the air. Oh, no. Now he's doing it. Star Wars is of the devil. See, now I'm doing it. I'm bringing it back to the devil. Well, listen, guys, this is what the Bible teaches. Okay, very clearly. He even said, this is what he's putting in there, okay? Now, one of the things you're going to learn later, okay, one of the things, here's, let me just say this, okay, before we continue. If you're watching this and, and you're thinking to yourself, if you think to yourself, whenever someone mentions the devil, that you basically look at them like an idiot, if, you, if they think that the devil's real, basically, you know? Um, because even the Satanists, like the atheistic Satanists, like the, uh, the satanic temple or the church of Satan, they don't even believe in a literal devil. They just use the devil as an archetype, uh, a symbol of rebellion, right? And intelligence and freedom and all this other stuff, right? But for someone to say that there is a literal devil and Satan out there, you think they're insane. And part of their problem is whenever you hear someone talk about the devil, you think, about the you know the red guy with the pitchfork and the horns and he looks like this goofy character that's not how the bible describes him bible never says that satan has a pitchfork never says that he's red or he has horns or anything like that he might have horns i don't know but the point is this the bible describes him as first he was lucifer he was a cherub, okay? He's an angelic being. Then he, when he got filled with pride, he sinned. He rebelled against God. God kicked him out. He became Satan, which means adversary. He became known as the devil, the dragon, the serpent, all these different names, right? He's still this fallen and angelic, intelligent being. And the Bible says that he uh, can be transformed into an angel of light. So he takes on different appearances. He doesn't come as this you know, uh, blatantly evil looking, uh, character in your face. He comes in a very, uh, appealing manner. 
very beautiful and intelligent and uh, charismatic. You understand what I'm saying here? That's who the devil is. Okay? So you need to rethink uh, the way that you view whenever someone mentions the devil. You need to rethink how you view that as some cartoon character that is not to be taken seriously. It's very serious. And there's nothing irrational about believing that. There's, in fact, most of the world's religious, okay? Most of the world believes that there is a spiritual realm beyond the five senses, which you can't see, but nevertheless, there's things going on in this realm that um, affect our world in this dimension, okay? Most people believe that. If you don't believe in that realm, in some type of spiritual realm, you're in the minority, my friend. You are in the minority, so, you know, anyways, I just wanted to say that because he talked about Satan tempting Christ. And what's interesting about that is um, Satan, when Satan did tempt Jesus, Satan told him, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And uh, Jesus rejected him. And he said, God is the only God and him only shalt thou worship. Okay. I should worship the Lord thy God only. That's it. And he rejected it. And uh, and then he, Jesus said in another passage that, um, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's the same principle right there. So it's this, this concept of selling your soul to the devil. It's right here. It's talked about in um, in the Bible, but it's, he's, he's putting this in the uh, Star Wars films. And what's interesting about this is that they teach in the Star Wars movies that the force is the same force that Darth Vader uses is the same force that Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and all the good so-called good people use. They get their power from the same force. They just choose to use it for good or for evil. Well, see, that's not what the Bible teaches about good and evil. So it's a totally different teaching. So people try to apply the, this movie to Christianity. It's not. It's nothing like what Christianity teaches. Okay? The Bible never says that Jesus gets the same power from the devil and the devil gets his same power from the same source as Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that whatsoever. Okay? And uh, But that is taught in witchcraft that... There's white magic and black magic, okay? But essentially comes from the same source. This uh, They believe that they're manipulating energy in the universe and that it's the same source. and uh, Or the chi and the ki and the prana, that they have this u- universal life force energy that they can manipulate to be used e- either for good or evil. But that's not, it's not biblical, okay? What, there's no such thing as good magic in the Bible, no such thing as white witchcraft and good good witchcraft. Now that's all. I talk about that way more in depth in the uh, the the show that I did on the Force. But I just wanted to mention that briefly because this is also what he's teaching right here about this Force, and um, it's just not true. Now, once again, if you're thinking here, like, oh, now he's talking about witchcraft. What what the heck is this? Well. You may not believe in witchcraft, and that's fine, but many people do. Uh, There are millions of practitioners of 
not just the religion of Wicca, but many forms of witchcraft and the occult, and they do believe in it. Uh, and many wouldn't believe it. If they're just sitting here, um, you know, drawing circles on the ground and pictures and uh, getting all these books and then nothing ever happens and they don't get anything out of it, why do you think they continue to do it? Just something to think about there. All right? I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that, you know, you're acting like it's all just a bunch of nonsense yet there's all these millions of people into it. Well, there's something drawing them into it. That's all I got to say about that. All right. Now, to finish this interview, Lucas said, yes, that story has also been told. Buddha was tempted. Buddha was not tempted the same way. Not at all. Uh, totally different. It's all through mythology. The gods are constantly tempting everybody and everything. So the idea of temptation is one of the things we struggle against. And the temptation, obviously, is the temptation to go to the dark side. Now, and interestingly enough, if you didn't notice that, he says the gods are constantly tempting. So by him just saying that, he said that Darth Vader was tempting Luke, right? And then Moyers asked, was that like when Satan tempted Christ? Lucas said, yes, the gods are constantly tempting. So he just called Satan a god. The gods are, are constantly tempting. I don't know if you caught that, but I caught that. Uh, anyways, so he said temptation is to go to the dark side. And how do they define that? Nobody knows. All right. Now we're done that interview. Now we're going to get into a bunch of stuff. Uh, we get some more video clips coming up. So wake up and pay attention. All right, let's go. Do movies like star Wars teach people about morality and religion? So here's another part of this interview that they did. Let George Lucas speak for himself in this interview with Bill Moores of Time Magazine, okay? So there's a couple clips from this um, interview that they did. I have video clips from this uh, interview with him with Bill Moyers, and it's called The Power of Myth. And um, we're going to play three clips, okay? I want you, I'm going to play them, and then I'm going to stop here and there and uh, offer some brief comments. But I want you to hear George Lucas himself his own voice, his face, I'll put it on the screen, telling you about, um, talking about, does, do Star Wars, do movies like Star Wars teach people about morality and religion, okay? Because before I get into that, you know the vast majority of people will tell you, no, they don't. They'll say that, no, movies don't influence me. <laughs> They don't influence my morals or or my religious views or anything. It's just fantasy. I'm just going for entertainment. That's all there is. And you're an idiot if you disagree with me. Well, I'm sorry, but you're the one that's ignorant. Because this is what the creator of the Star Wars series admits to doing. And they wouldn't do it if they didn't think it influenced anybody. That would be a waste of time and money and energy. That's stupid. Okay? This does affect people. It does. You, you're not sitting there and, and then you're thinking, okay, now I'm going to become a Buddhist. No, that's not how it works. It's a subtle influence and there's subtle shifts and there's gradually changing over time, but there is an influence. Okay. These movies are very powerful. Now let's look at the clips. All right. Start off with the first one and uh, go to Vimeo here and uh, let's start this first clip.
Nestled into a rolling hillside north of San Francisco, Skywalker Ranch is the command center of George Lucas's filmmaking empire. I first came here to interview Joseph Campbell, a friend and mentor to George Lucas. Twelve years later, I came back, this time to interview the protege. After a 22-year hiatus, George Lucas is back in the director's chair with a new episode in his Star Wars epic, The Phantom Menace. I wanted to know why he thought the Star Wars saga had grasped such a hold on our collective imagination. Over the course of an afternoon, we talked about myths and movies, fathers and sons, fantasy and imagination. Joseph Campbell said that all the great myths, the primitive myths, the great stories have to be regenerated if they're going to have any impact, and that you had done that with Star Wars. Are you conscious of doing that? Are you saying, I am trying to recreate the myths of old? Or are you saying, I just want to make a good action movie? Well, when I did Star Wars, I consciously set about to recreate myths. So he just said yes right there. He said, did you consciously put this mythology in there? And he didn't just say yes. He said, so I consciously put the myths in there. So yes, he did. And... um Let's continue. And the, and the classic mythological uh, motifs. Uh, and I wanted to use those motifs to deal with issues that existed today. You know, Joe used to talk about the, the, the basic um, uh, issues that, that, that create the mystery of life, of you know, birth and death and I like to always add, you know, your relationship with your parents. And, and I'm wondering, did you have such a mentor when you were growing up? Is this, is this part of, of the movie an extension of what happened to you? Obviously, my first mentor was my father, but then you progress with either, you know, people that are more skilled in a particular area than you are. Um, in film, Francis Coppola became my mentor and, and taught me how uh i have a brief note we're not going to really talk about this in the notes but i have a brief um note about francis coppola uh at the end of the teaching so when i upload the notes for the show i'll put a link to the notes in the description and you can scroll down there you can check out more about france francis coppola and uh frank whatever his name is it's uh not too good how to write screenplays taught me how to work with actors uh, I was much more of a, a cameraman and a film editor, much more on the technical side of things. And, um, you know, I think my last mentor probably was Joe. who Joseph Campbell. Joe Campbell, who asked a lot of the interesting questions and exposed me to a lot of things that made me very interested. Okay, so here we have on camera George Lucas admitting his mentor joseph campbell all right we're gonna have a couple more admissions of him talking about this but this is very very important because joseph campbell had the biggest influence on george lucas as far as the mythology that is and the worldview and the religious worldview that is put into star wars the biggest influence for those worldviews of religion come from joseph campbell all right let's continue in uh, a lot more of the cosmic questions and the mystery uh, and I've been interested in those all my life, but I hadn't I focused it the way I had once I got... He said the mystery again. ...to be good friends with Joe. Not just a mentor, good friends. 
a professor I know said that he recently asked his freshman class how many of them had seen all three of the trilogy and everyone in the class raised his hand and he said to me I hope Lucas knows he's mentoring an entire generation of, 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 of young Americans listen to how he responds to that he's mentoring an entire generation because I bet if you asked all those students in their hand uh, those students if you asked all those students in the class to raise their hand how many of you can list for me right now uh, the Bill of Rights the first 10 amendments tell me what each one contains how many hands would go up? Not many, if 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 not none, right? But this man, with this movie Star Wars, has uh, way more influence than the teachers in the school. That's what he says. I, I have a philosophy that we all teach. We all teach. Okay, pay attention. This is for you guys out there that tell me or anyone else that movies don't teach. Oh, I'm not influenced by movies. Movies don't teach me anything. Movies don't teach my children or other people. Don't teach anything. It's just entertainment. It's just in fantasy. I'm not, my worldview is not influenced whatsoever by movies. You are ridiculous. You're ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. You're delusional. You're denying reality. He said, we're all teachers. Listen. And we all teach every day of our lives. And it's not necessarily what we lecture. I've discovered kids don't like lectures at all. But it is really the way we live our lives and what we do with our lives and, and the way we conduct ourselves. Um, and once in a while, they listen to the lectures. Um, so when I make the films, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm teaching on a much larger scale. I am very aware of the fact that I'm teaching on a much larger scale, a global scale. Than I would just as a parent or somebody walking through life because I have this megaphone. Anybody in the media has a very large megaphone that they can reach a lot of different people. And so whatever they say, whatever they do, however they conduct themselves, whatever they produce has an influence and is teaching somebody something. There it is. If you deny that, you're denying reality, my friend. Uh, and uh, I try to be aware of what it is I'm saying. What do you he mean? tries to be aware of what he's saying because he consciously knows he's putting his religious worldview into the Star Wars movies. All right, let's jump to the next clip. Uh, let's see here at the 8.54 mark. Let's check this out. Right about here All right here we go it's like a one minute what the whole point was have you been influenced by buddhism because star wars came along just about the time there was this growing interest in america and eastern religions and uh, I, and i notice in the phantom menace the new episode one that uh, they discover this slave child who has a an aura about him and it reminded me of uh, how the Buddhists go out to look for the next Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, a, again, a mixture of all kinds of, of uh, mythology and religious beliefs that have been amalgamated into the movie. And I've tried to take the ideas that seem to cut across the most cultures, 
uh, because I'm fascinated by that, and I think that's one of the things that um, I really um, got from Joe Campbell was that what's what he was trying to do is find the common threads through the various mythology, through the the religions. Okay, so he admitted two things here, okay? He admitted that he consciously put in his belief about mythology and religions into the movie and the supposed common thread throughout all the religions. And he said he was he got that influence from Joe Campbell and to put that in there. Okay, those are the two points that he said. Now let's look at the last clip here. 1107. This is the, the, you know, this is, this is, again, part of the globalization of the world we live in. The average human being has much more awareness. Globalization. Keep that in mind. Of the other cultures that exist, coexist with them on this planet. And that certain things um, go across cultures. Uh, and uh, entertainment is one of them. And uh, film. Music is another. Uh, and the stories that I tell cut across all cultures are seen all around the world. And that's why they use movies and music to cut across cultures to, to uh, have their worldview and their philosophy spread throughout all countries in the world. So what lessons do you think they're taking away from watching Star Wars in, in Italy and Malaysia and South America? One of the main themes in the film is uh, having organisms realize that they must live together and they must live together for mutual advantage not just humans but all living things and everything in the galaxy is part of a a greater whole it's a an issue of quieting your mind so you can listen to yourself and as joe would say follow your bliss it's to follow your talent is is one way to put it that's the way i see it uh, I went, th- when, you know, the hardest thing to do when you're young is to figure out what it is you're going to do. And uh, you'll never know what it is you're going to do. But if you follow the things that you enjoy, um, I'm not sure anybody really enjoys making money. Whoop. I don't know why they just restarted. Sorry. Let me uh, jump back there. That was weird. Let me get back there real quick. Miss, help you to have your own hero's journey. Let me go back. Your bliss. And what do stories do for us in that sense? What are myths? They try to show us our place. Enjoy what they do after they've made it. Oh, there we go. They don't enjoy the process. Making money. Okay, Uh, here we go. If you can find something that you actually enjoy the process, then you found your bliss. And what do stories do for us in that sense? What are myths? They try to show us our place. Myths help you to have your own hero's journey, find your individuality, find your place in the world, but hopefully remind you that you're part of a whole and that you must also uh, be part of the community and and think of the welfare of the community above the welfare of yourself. <laughs> that last statement I just wanted to put in there. You need to think about the community and put the welfare of the community above the needs of yourself. Wow. Um all I can say is that sounds just like communism. You know, this is what uh, people like Hillary Clinton push. It takes a village to raise a child. And um, yeah, that's his philosophy. 
and uh, collectivism. But anyways, there we go. He admits all that stuff, and he admits that uh, he put he's a teacher. He puts his views of religion and mythology into the movies, and he was influenced by Joseph Campbell. All right, let's continue. Moving on now. He mentioned Joseph Campbell was a big influence on him. Joseph Campbell's influence on George Lucas and Star Wars. Lucas, Lucas talks about Joseph Campbell and his great influence on him. All right, so let's look at this clip real quick how, about how George Lucas, when he was younger, talk, talked about uh, Joseph Campbell's influence on him. Star Wars producer-director George Lucas. About 10 years ago, I set out to write a children's film. I had an idea of doing a modern fairy tale. Stumbled across a hero with a thousand faces. After reading uh, more of Joe's books, I began to understand how I could do this. It was a great gift. Uh, and... Uh, and a very important moment. If I don't, you know, it's possible that if I hadn't run across that, I would still be writing Star Wars today. There's a wonderful life force that comes through, a wit and charm when Joe speaks, that as wonderful as the books are, don't capture the man. All right, so there you go. Obviously, Joseph Campbell is a huge influence on George Lucas. All right, now. Hello. All right, just sounded weird in my headphones. All right, now. Let's move on to the next clip here. The next part of the notes. So we got that down pretty good, but let's read this quote here about Joseph Campbell's influence on George Lucas. George Lucas was the first Hollywood filmmaker to credit Campbell's influence. Lucas stated the following the release of the first Star Wars film in 1977 that its story was shaped in part by ideas described in The Hero with a Thousand Faces and other works of Campbell. We'll be talking about that book. The linkage between Star Wars and Campbell was further reinforced when later reprints of Campbell's book used the image of Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker on the cover. Okay, and you'll see the significance of that later, but they used Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, on the cover of the book The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Very, very significant because it's basically saying this is a retelling of what is being taught in this book. Luke Skywalker is representing this hero with a thousand faces blatantly right in your face. They put it on Joseph Campbell's book. Lucas discusses this influence at great length in his in the authorized biography of Joseph Campbell, A Fire in the Mind. Here it is, quote, I, George Lucas, came to the conclusion after American Graffiti that what's valuable for me is to set standards, not to show people the world the way it is. Around the period of this realization, it came to me that there was, that there really was no modern use of mythology. The Western was possibly the last generically American fairy tale, telling us about our values. And once the Western disappeared, nothing has ever taken its place. In literature, we were going off into science fiction, so that's when I started doing more strenuous research on fairy tales, folklore, and mythology, and I started reading Joe's books. Before that, I hadn't read any of Joe's books. It was very eerie because in reading The Hero with a Thousand Faces, I began to realize that my first draft of Star Wars was following classic motifs. Oh, what a coincidence. So I mod modified my next draft of Star Wars according to what I'd been learning about classical motifs and made it a little bit more consistent. I went on to read The Masks of God, another book by Joseph Campbell, and many other books. 
It was not until after the completion of the original Star Wars trilogy in 1983, however, that Lucas met Campbell or heard any of his lectures. The 1988 documentary, The Power of Myth, was filmed at Lucas's Skywalker Ranch. That's what we just watched a clip from. During his interviews with Bill Moyers, Campbell discusses the way in which Lucas used the hero's journey in the Star Wars films. Number four... Uh, five and six to reinvent the mythology for the contemporary viewer. Moyers and Lucas filmed an interview 12 months, 12 years later in 1999 called the mythology of star Wars uh, with George Lucas and Bill Moyers to further discuss the impact of Campbell's work on Lucas's films. In addition, the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institution sponsored an exhibit during the late 1990s called Star Wars, The Magic of Myth, which discussed the ways in which Campbell's work shaped the Star Wars films. Okay, so we very clearly here have the gigantic influence of Joseph Campbell on George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. Now, since that is thoroughly documented. Let's continue on just for a little bit here. We're going to talk about jo- Joseph Campbell's influence on other movies. Check this out. The Hero with the Thousand Faces has influenced a number of artists, musicians, poets, and filmmakers, including Bob Dylan, Jim Morrison, and George Lucas. Mickey Hart, Bob Weir, and Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead had long noted Campbell's influence and agreed to participate in a seminar with him in 1986 entitled From Ritual to rapture i think it was actually called on ritual and rapture i i looked that up and uh very interesting when it comes to the grateful dead guys oh man there's so much i could talk about about the grateful dead uh bob weir from the grateful dead you can look up an interview on youtube they ask him about bohemian grove because bob weir went out to uh bohemian grove he admits to it openly and he defends it and says yeah it's just a bunch of guys hanging out and uh, he said he was hanging out with the guy that was involved in the uh, in in creating the the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was the forerunner to the CIA. Yeah, no big deal. And uh, man, there's so much stuff we could talk about about the Grateful Dead. But uh, George Joe Campbell had a huge influence on them. Uh, Jim Morrison, The Doors, Bob Dylan, all these guys. Stanley Kubrick introduced Arthur C. Clarke to the book during the writing of 2001 a space odyssey so stanley kubrick huge very influential filmmaker uh and then arthur c clark very well known and famous um science fiction writer uh right up there with l ron hubbard and then uh christopher vogler a hollywood film producer and writer wrote a memmy a memmy <laughs> wow wrote a memo for disney <laughs> studios on the use of the hero with the thousand faces as a guide, sorry, I'm laughing at myself saying that. All right, that's enough. He wrote a memo for Disney Studio. Okay, so this is huge. I don't know if <laughs> this is huge. Will you listen to this? This guy wrote a memo for Disney Studios on the Hero with a Thousand Faces as a guide for scriptwriters. Uh, what scriptwriters? The people that wrote scripts for Disney. Okay, this memo influenced the creation of such films as, check this out, Aladdin, The Lion King, and The Beauty and the Beast. Influenced by what? The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell's work. So guess what? Joseph Campbell has influenced more than just 
the Star Wars movies. He's influenced Disney movies like Aladdin, The Lion King, and Beauty and the Beast. Musicians like The Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and Jim Morrison. All these people, filmmakers, musicians, and we'll, later we'll see writers. But Disney movies, that's huge. They're just retelling the story of the hero with a thousand faces over and over again in a different way. Vogler later expanded the memo and published it as the book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, which became the inspiration for a number of successful Hollywood films and is believed to have been used in the development of the Matrix series. Many filmmakers in the late 20th... uh, Okay, sorry, I just skipped past that because I was thinking about something else. Uh, The Matrix. So there you go. So what is he saying? Became an inspiration for The Matrix. So guess what? The Matrix movies are another retelling of the hero with a thousand faces. Now, I hope you're starting to see how monumentally important this book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is. If huge, uh, hugely successful and influential films such as Disney movies and The Matrix and Star Wars are all saying that they're inspired by The Hero with a Thousand Faces and these... I think it would be worthwhile to look into what is this book about and who is Joseph Campbell. That's what we're going to look at today. Many filmmakers of the late 20th century and early 21st centuries have acknowledged the influence of Campbell's work on their own craft. Among films that many viewers have recognized as closely following the pattern of the monomyth are the Matrix series, the Batman series, and the Indiana Jones series. Now we've got Batman and Indiana Jones. I mean, how many of these hugely important films are influenced by this? Batman and Indiana Jones? I mean, these are huge film franchises. Stanley Kubrick introduced Arthur C. Clarke. All right, we already read that. Scholars, many scholars and reviewers have noted how closely J.K. Rowling's popular Harry Potter books have hewed to the monomyth schema. To date, however, Rowling has neither confirmed that she used Campbell's work as an inspiration or denied that she ever read The Hero of the Thousand Faces. So she hasn't admitted it, but many scholars have said it's following the same pattern as all these other movies. The sixth and final season of Lost, remember the show Lost, also recognizes Campbell's theories on the hero. During one of the bonus features, the makers of the series discuss the journey of the main characters and how each is a hero in their own way. Before each little segment of this particular feature, they quote Campbell and then expound on that particular quote by discussing the various characters. So it's influenced the show Lost. Here's another one. Mark Rosewater, head designer of magic the gathering the the trading card game okay you probably have heard of that the head designer for the magic the gathering cards cites the hero's journey as a major inspiration for the weatherlight saga an epic story arc that went from 97 to 2001 and spanned multiple card sets comic books and novels so it's influencing these card games and comic books and novels Wow. Let's see who else Joseph Campbell in his book here, The Thousand Faces Influence. Campbell influenced literature. After the explosion of popularity brought on by the Star Wars films and the power of myth, creative artists and many media recognized the potential to use Campbell's theories to try to unlock human responses to narrative patterns. Novelists, songwriters, video game designers, video game designers as well 
have studied Campbell's work in order to better understand mythology, in particular the monomyth and its impact. Novelist Richard Adams acknowledges a debt to Campbell's work, and specifically to the concept of the monomyth. In his best-known work, Watership Down, Adams uses extracts from The Hero with a Thousand Faces as chapter epigrams. And then, look who it is here, Dan Brown. Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons and all those books, all those books, Dan Brown mentioned in a New York Times interview that Joseph Campbell's works, particularly The Power of Myth and The Hero with a Thousand Faces, inspired him to create the character of Robert Langdon. Who's Robert Langdon? The main character in The Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. Create It was influenced by Joseph Campbell. All right? So, Joseph Campbell has influenced a lot of people. Hollywood, authors, musicians, video game creators, all these people influenced by Joseph Campbell. Very, and of course, the topic of our show, Star Wars. Now, if Joseph Campbell has such a huge influence on all these people and all these avenues of entertainment, right? If he has all this influence... Why wouldn't we want to know more about this man and what he believes and what he teaches in his writings? That's exactly what we're going to do next, right after this short break. Am I going to leave you hanging? Yeah, yeah, I am. But really, I just pause it and then I like, you know, get up and stretch, take a drink of water, go to the bathroom, and then I come back. But then when I, you know, cut the clip back in, there's really no break for you, so it just like cuts the next clip. So uh, you actually won't have to wait, so that's nice for you. But I am going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to look at Joseph Campbell, who he is, and who he was influenced by, what he teaches, and what his books teach, okay? That's what we're going to look at. Please stay tuned, and uh, when we come back. All right, we're back. We're going to move on now to Joseph Campbell. Let's find out who this guy is. The biggest influence on George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. Joseph Campbell. Joseph John Campbell. Jingleheimer Smith. Just kidding. All right. Joseph Campbell was an American mythologist, writer, and lecturer, best known for his work in comparative mythology and comparative religion. His work covers many aspects of the human experience. His philosophy is often summarized by his phrase, follow your bliss. Joseph Campbell was born in White Plains, New York, in an upper class, upper middle class Irish Catholic family. Uh, I'm noting the word Catholic because we're going to see there's a lot of Catholic influence on him. And we'll explain that later. In 1921, Campbell graduated from the Canterbury School in New Milford, Connecticut. Canterbury was founded in 1915 on the aspiration of two men, Henry O. Havemeyer, scion of a wealthy family, which made his fortune in sugar refining, and Nelson Hume, a Catholic schoolmaster. They intended to establish a Roman Catholic school where young men could be guided in their religion and be prepared to attend Ivy League universities. Okay, so he went to a, he's from a Catholic family, and then Joseph Campbell went to a Catholic school, Joseph Campbell's Mythic Journey. Uh, New Perspectives Magazine by Jonathan Young. New Perspectives Magazine, July 1994, says this. Mythologist and Joseph Campbell was a masterful storyteller. He could weave tales from every corner of the world into spellbinding narratives. His lifelong quest from childhood days as a devout Catholic altar boy 
to fame as the world's most noted scholar in comparative mythology makes for a fine heroic story. Okay, so he was a Catholic altar boy. His Catholic altar boy went to Catholic school, came from a Catholic family. Huge Catholic influence on Joseph Campbell. And as we'll see later, his um, one of his mentors, also Catholic. Now let's continue here. Campbell's influences. The first one. Campbell often referred to the work of modern writers James Joyce, James Joyce and Thomas Mann in his lectures and writings, as well as the art of Pablo Picasso. He was introduced to their work during his stay as a graduate student in Paris. So, so one of his biggest influences was James Joyce. All right. So we're going to see who was James Joyce. James Joyce, James Augustine, Augustine Aloysius Joyce was an Irish novelist and poet considered to be one of the most influential writers in the modernist avant-garde of the early 20th century. Joyce was born in 41 Brighton Square, Rathgard, Dublin, about a half mile from his mother's birthplace in uh, Sorry, I just got a text. I try not to look at my phone there, but it was buzzing. All right. About a half mile from his mother's birthplace in Tyranir, in, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that. Tyranir. <laughs> Some Irish person is probably ripping their hair out right now. I'm part Irish, by the way. All right. Into a middle-class family on the way down. A brilliant student, he excelled at the Jesuit schools, Clongawes and Belvedere. Jesuit. Despite the chaotic family life imposed by his father's alcoholism and unpredictable finances. Okay, so James Joyce went to a Jesuit school. Joyce had begun his education at Clongowes. <laughs> I don't know, don't know how to say that. Wood College, a Jesuit boarding school near Clane County, Kildare, in 1888, but had to leave in 1892 when his father could no longer pay the fees. Joyce then studied at the home and briefly at the Christian Brothers O'Connell School on North Richmond Street, Dublin, before he was offered a place in the Jesuits Dublin School, Belvedere College, in 1893. So he went from Jesuit school to Jesuit school. This came about because of a chance meeting his father had with a Jesuit priest. Okay, so his father met with a Jesuit priest who knew the family and Joyce was given a reduction and fees to attend Belvedere. Those Jesuits really wanted him in there. In 1895, Joyce, now age 13, was elected to join the Sodality of Our Lady by his peers at Belvedere. The philosophy of Thomas Aquinas continued to have a strong influence on him for the most of his life, okay? So, what was the Sodality of Our Lady? That was, also known as the Sodality of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is a Roman Catholic Marian society, which means they worship Mary, and they pray, oh, sorry, they say, Catholics will say they venerate her, which if you look up the definition of venerate, it says worship, so. Who to thunk it? Uh, so, it's a Roman Catholic Marian society founded in, in 1563 by a young Belgian Jesuit, there it is again, so the Sodality of Our Lady was founded by a Jesuit, Jean 
Lunis at the Collegio Romano of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. The Ignatian lay group Christian life community traces its origin, origins to the first sodality. Although first established for young schoolboys, the papal bull Superna Disposizione sodalities for adults under the authority of the Superior General of the Society of Jesus, also known as the Black Pope, were allowed to be established. Okay, so it's a totally Jesuit group, the sodality of Our Lady. So James Joyce joined that group. He acknowledged the debt he owed, and then James Joyce acknowledged the debt he owed to his early Jesuit training. Joyce told the sculptor August Souter that from his Jesuit education, he had learned to arrange things in such a way that they become easy to survey and to judge. One of Campbell's biggest influences was a Jesuit, okay? So this guy was Jesuit trained through and through. Jesuit school, two different Jesuit schools, belonged to a Jesuit society that worshiped Mary. His father uh, met with a Jesuit priest, and then he praised his Jesuit training openly, okay? So one of Joseph Campbell's biggest influences was Jesuit trained all his life, praises the Jesuits, okay? Why is that significant? Well, Joseph Campbell grew up Catholic. He came from a Catholic family, went to a Catholic school, was a Catholic altar boy, and he's influenced by this Catholic. Now, why is that significant? Because Joseph Campbell is pushing one of the one of the biggest pushers of showing these commonalities between all the religions, trying to show that all the religions basically the say the same thing. Now, why would a Catholic say that? Why would he be influenced to say that stuff? Well, who are the Jesuits uh, before we continue? Well, we could do 50 shows on that. No joke. They've been around for a long time, so they've done a lot of stuff. Uh, they started in about 1534, but they were officially approved by the Pope in uh, 1540, 1541, somewhere around there. And uh, founded by a man named Ignatius of Loyola. And uh, I think his real name is like Inigo Montoya or something like that, but... Is that the guy from The Princess Bride? I don't know. But anyways, his name was Ignatius of Loyola. And uh, he found the main purpose of founding the group was as a what is known as the Counter-Reformation. It was supposed to be a opposition group to the Protestant Reformation. And they're supposed to stamp out the influence of the Protestant Reformation because the Protestant Reformation had broken the... Pope's temporal power, the power of the Vatican, the Catholic Church on the world, especially in Europe, and uh, not only religiously, but politically and economically. And so the Jesuits were a military order that were established to try to take back that influence and get rid of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, they ended up, you know, infiltrating governments around the world, getting thrown out of like 80 countries and getting banned and then coming back and all kinds of, a lot of shady stuff. And uh, uh, the dictionaries actually in, in uh, back in the 1800s, if you go back to an 1828 Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word Jesuit or Jesuitism or Jesuitical, it'll saying uh, cunning, prevarication, deceitful, all that other stuff. And uh, it's not found in modern day dictionaries. So I wonder why they took that out. But I digressed. As um, Richie from Boston would say, at any rate, but I digress. All right. Now, uh, let's continue here. So, one of his biggest influences was a Jesuit. And uh, 
here's another <laughs> interesting clip uh, by Newt Gingrich, the politician. Check out what he says about the Jedi from Star Wars. See see what um, Newt Gingrich says about that. All right, check this out. One could argue they are the Jesuits of this world. These are the people who are the truth bearers, uh, who are the priesthood of freedom, uh, and who give their lives in order to stop evil. Wow. Okay, so... <laughs> Newt Gingrich says the Jedi are the Jesuits of the world? <laughs> um, wow. He said the Jedi are like the Jesuits of the world, and they give their lives... For freedom? Uh, more like they want to spread tyranny all around the world and absolute submission to the Pope, but that's another point. But anyways, he says the Jedi are like the Jesuits. Isn't that interesting? When Joseph Campbell's biggest influence was um, a Jesuit. One of his biggest influences was a Jesuit. And he's raised Catholic. Yeah. Starting to see a pattern here. All right, let's continue here. The works of Arthur Schopenhauer and Friedrich Nietzsche had a profound effect on Campbell's thinking. He quoted their writing frequently. Many of you have heard of Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, probably, but more likely Nietzsche. But we're going to view what was... So, since Nietzsche had a profound effect upon Campbell's thinking, he quoted their writing frequently, okay? So, if Nietzsche was such a huge influence on uh joseph campbell let's look at what frederick nietzsche's views on christianity were here's a quote from nietzsche from his book human all too human 405 from the rj hollingdale translation here's what nietzsche said when we hear the ancient bells growling on a sunday morning we ask ourselves is it really possible this for a Jew crucified 2,000 years ago who said he was God's son? The proof of such a claim is lacking. Certainly the Christian religion is an antiquity projected into our times from remote prehistory. And the fact that the claim is believed, whereas one is otherwise so strict in examining pretensions, is perhaps the most ancient piece of this heritage. A God who begets children with a mortal woman? A sage who bids men work no more, have no more courts, but look for the signs of the impending end of the world? A justice that accepts the innocent as a vicarious sacrifice? Someone who orders his disciples to drink his blood? Prayers for miraculous interventions? Sins perpetrated against a God, atoned for by a God? Fear of, beyond, of a beyond to which death is the portal? The form of the cross as a symbol in a time that no longer knows the function and ignominy of the cross. How ghoulishly all this touches us as if from the tomb of a primeval past. Can one believe that such things are still believed? So I kind of think he didn't believe the Bible. Yeah, I kind of think so. I don't think he liked God. So, no, Nietzsche was a man who influenced, was a big influence on Hitler also, by the way. But he was a, an atheist, and um, he hated God. Well, some might say, how could he hate God? He didn't believe God existed. Well, he hates God. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says the fool 
has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay? Everyone knows there is a God, even those that say they don't believe in a God. They deep down, they know they have, they, uh, that God exists. Um, the Bible says that everyone knows that God exists. Everyone in, in, on the planet knows that God exists. They have creation as a witness. They know from the creation that there is a creator by looking around at everything. They have the witness of conscience so that they know that when they sin and they do wrong, that it is wrong, that it's a sin, that it's bad, and that they will give account one day to a holy and righteous God who will personally hold them accountable for their sin. Uh, then you also have the witness of the, the word of God with the prophet, fulfilled prophecies, advanced scientific revelation, all these other types of things. And then you have the witness of the testimonies of those that are born again with the transformed lives going from wicked people to being saved and righteous people. Uh, you have all these witnesses that prove to you that God is real and that you will be judged one day. And the, of course, the gospel is preached that you must be saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, having said all that, uh, Nietzsche said he didn't believe that. Why? Because he hated God. Why does he hate God? Because he loves his sin. That's why most everyone hates God, is they love their sin. They want to live in sin, do what they want to do, and they don't want God telling them what to do. That's why he had that view. And uh, But what's interesting is he had all that view and he was a big influence on Joseph Campbell. Uh, by the way, he said, God uh, orders his, Jesus orders, I can't refute, I'm not going to refute every single thing right now. I don't have enough time, but we can go point by point and refute everything. But he said things like he orders someone who orders his disciples to drink his blood. Okay. When we take the Lord's Supper, we don't believe that that great juice the juice uh the bible calls it the blood of the grape the fruit of the vine it comes from grapes we don't believe that's literally the blood of jesus christ now that's what the catholic church teaches and i do believe that that is cannibalism and that is witchcraft that is we don't believe that a, a priest can magically change uh bread into the literal body of christ and the blood and the wine the grape juice into literally christ's blood don't believe that we believe it is a in biblical christianity that is a symbol representing christ's body and blood his blood being shed his body being broken for us okay for our sins it's a symbol it's not literally drinking it so and uh of course though when people attack christianity they always have to twist what the bible says in order to try to prove a point because they can't just say what it says or else then they wouldn't be able to refute it all right, so let's continue. So they created a straw man. Let's move on to the next influence. Arthur Schopenhauer, big influence on Joseph Campbell. Arthur Schopenhauer was a German philosopher. He is best known for his 1818 work, The World as Will and Representation, in which he characterizes the phenomenal world and consequently all human action as the product of a blind, insatiable, and malignant metaphysical will. Proceeding from the transcendental idealism of Immanuel Kant, Schopenhauer developed an atheistic, metaphysical, and ethical system that has best uh, been best been described as an exemplary manifestation of philosophical pessimism. He was an atheist, okay? So he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God, which means he hated God. And then also, this man was a very evil man. You know why? He was a eugenicist. And eugenics is absolutely despicable. 
and eugenics is the philosophy that Hitler followed. Uh, and, and don't worry, I'm not doing the, uh, what do they call it? The ad Hitlerium, where you just devolve into calling, saying someone's like Hitler, uh, you know, and just throwing out Hitler. You are literally Hitler. No, I'm saying literally Hitler was a eugenicist, okay? He believed that he wanted to kill off the diseased and weaker elements of society in order to create stronger, so the stronger people of society could thrive that's what eugenics is the strongest and the best they say only the strong will survive but they aid they say a lot of people say that this happens naturally it happens in nature through disease and these types of things but they help to aid in this process by sterilizing people and killing people and by the way eugenics was performed the philosophy of eugenics played out in the united states when thousands of people in the United States who were deemed to be unfit to procreate were sterilized never to be able to have children again in the United States. Okay? And uh, that's a whole nother show. Now, Arthur Schopenhauer was a eugenicist and here's a quote about that. Schopenhauer believed that personality and intellect were inherited. This view of the importance for the species of whom we choose to love was reflected in his views on eugenics or good breeding here schopenhauer wrote this quote with our knowledge of the complete unalterability both of character and of mental faculties we are led to the view that a real and thorough improvement of the human race might be reached not so much from outside as from within not so much by theory and instruction as rather by the path of generation Plato had something of the kind in mind when in the fifth book of this Republic, he explained his plan for increasing and improving his warrior caste. If we could castrate all scoundrels and listen to what he says. If we could castrate all scoundrels and stick all stupid geese in a convent and give men of noble character a whole harem and procure men and indeed thorough men for all girls of intellect and understanding, then a ger- generation would soon arise which would produce a better age than that of Pericles. Wowie! He just said a mouth- mouthful. All right? Let me translate that for you. If you didn't get what he said. Uh, he said, if we could castrate all scoundrels, okay? Sterilize or castrate all people that they deem to be scoundrels, which could be criminals um, to never be able to procreate again or anyone else they deem a scoundrel, a views they didn't like, and stick all the stupid geese in a convent. Okay, so he's saying all people that they deem to be stupid of lower intelligence, put them in a convent. Uh, separate them away from everyone else in society. And then he says, and then don't let them reproduce. If give men of noble character a whole harem. What is he saying? You find a guy that's smart and good looking and strong and give him a whole group of women to have children with so that they will pass on his genetics. And then he says, and procure men and indeed thorough men for all girls of intellect and understanding. He said, and then when you find the really smart women, then you get a bunch of men. Uh, you find a man for them, find men for them so that you can um, create this, uh, this race of people. And uh, it's nothing different than Hitler's master race. In another context, Schopenhauer reiterated 
his anti-democratic eugenic thesis. Quote, if you want utopian plans, I would say the only solution to the problem is the despotism of the wise and noble members of a genuine aristocracy, a genuine nobility achieved by mating the most magnanimous men and with the cleverest and most gifted women. This proposal constitutes my utopia and my platonic republic. Okay? So once again, the, the what he deems to be the most intelligent, best quality members of society that only they would be allowed to procreate. It's the same thing that's written in uh, Aldous Huxley's book, Brave New World. That's what they visioned for the future. By the way, some people think, a lot of people think that Aldous Huxley was warning the world against what things... Uh, what would become of the world, the dystopian future, but he actually wasn't. That's what he wanted because he was part of the Fabian socialists and the elitist, and uh, he that's what he wanted. So anyways, analysts have suggested that Schopenhauer's advocacy of anti-egalitarianism and eugenics influenced the neo-aristocratic philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, who initially considered Schopenhauer his mentor, Okay. So he was influenced by, uh, he influenced Nietzsche. So Schopenhauer influenced Nietzsche, okay? So there you go. Two atheists that hated God and uh, wanted to sterilize, make sure that some people couldn't have children because they're stupid. And uh, these two guys were a big influence on Joseph Campbell. All right, so let's continue. Campbell's ideas, more influences on Campbell. Campbell's ideas regarding myth and its relation to the human psyche are dependent in part on the pioneering work of Sigmund Freud, but in particular on the work of Carl Jung, Carl Jung, whose studies on human psychology greatly influenced Campbell. Okay, so Freud and Jung, um, man, I could, I have another show notes, uh, another show with notes about these guys too, uh, their influence on the uh, LGBT movement, but beyond that, They've had a huge impact on society and a lot of people, these psychologists. And um they were they were bad news, man. They Freud was he was really messed up. He he believed in so many disgusting things. His uh Oedipus complex theory, it was totally perverted and weird about people being with their mothers and all kinds of disgusting things and and then uh he was he was in a cocaine, he was a cokehead. And then Carl Jung was super into uh, the occult, and uh, and so was Freud too. He had a weird collection of occultic objects, and uh, so that's those guys. But uh, actually, we're going to learn right now about one of Jung's uh, is one of the biggest things that influenced him. So Carl Jung, remember, big influence on Campbell. Campbell's conception of myth is closely related to the Jungian method of dream interpretation which is heavily reliant on symbolic interpretation. Campbell met Carl Jung. So not only was Carl Jung an influence on Campbell, Campbell actually met Carl Jung and participated in the Jungian Iranos conferences in Switzerland. Switzerland. Okay, So Jung's insights into archetypes were heavily influenced by what? The Bardo Thodol. What's that? The Tibetan Book of the Dead. In his book, The Mythic Image, Campbell quotes Jung's statement about the Bardo Thodol saying this, that it, quote, belongs to that class of writings which only, not only are of interest to specialists in Mahayana Buddhism, but also because of their deep humanity and still deeper insights 
insight into the secrets of the human psyche, make an especial appeal to the layman seeking to broaden his knowledge of life. For years, ever since it was first published, the Bardo Thodol has been my constant companion. And to it, I owe not only many stimulating ideas and discoveries, but also many fundamental insights. Okay? So, Joseph Campbell is quoting Carl Jung, what Carl Jung said about the Tibetan Book, Tibetan Book of the Dead. Carl Jung said, the Tibetan Book of the Dead has been my constant companion, and I owe to it many stimulating ideas and discoveries and many fundamental insights, all from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You see how I'm, I'm showing you the chain of influence? Um, Star Wars was created by George Lucas. George Lucas was influenced by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was influenced by Carl Jung. Carl Jung is influenced by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, what was that? Well, the Bardo Thodol Liberation Through Hearing During the Intermediate State is a text from a larger corpus of teachings, the profound dharma of self-liberation through the intention of the peaceful and wrathful ones revealed by Karma Lingpa. It is best known... It is the best-known work of Nyingma literature known in the West as the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan text describes and is intended to guide one through the experiences that the consciousness has after death. In the Bardo, the the interval between death and the next rebirth, the text also includes chapters on the signs of death and rituals to undertake when death is closing in or has taken place okay so it's about death and rebirth and in between the state of death and supposed rebirth okay now the bible teaches that there's no such thing as rebirth and reincarnation okay the bible talks about being born again okay but what being born again is while you're alive now living on this planet in this dimension you uh jesus said you must be born again except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of god so he says you have to right? So what does that mean? Well, being born again is when God supernaturally transforms you into a new person. Okay. You're, you become a new creature. If any man be in, uh, in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That's what it means. You become a new creature, which means a new creation. You're born again. You're given a new heart with new desires that no longer desires to live a life of sin and rebellion, but desires to live a life of righteousness, praying, reading the Bible, uh, witnessing the gospel, all these other types of things, doing good, loving your neighbor, loving God. Okay? Changes your heart. You're a totally new person. Now, that rebirth is not the same as in the occult, what they say a rebirth is. All right? And uh, in addition to that, I said that um, they believe after death that there's an in-between state and there's rebirth and reincarnation and stuff. Well, the Bible says you die once and that's it. Uh, it says, as it is, is it appointed, Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Okay. So what that means is you only die once and then you will stand before the judgment. All right. And uh, there's no reincarnation, no second chances, no coming back, no trying to figure it out. After you die, once you die, that's it. Your eternity, your fate, your eternal fate is sealed and you can't change it. And that's it. That's all there is to it. So you know, if you want to change it, you need to do it now before you die. All right. Now, The Psychedelic Experience, published in 1964, is a guide for LSD trips, written by Timothy Leary, 
Ralph Metzner, and Richard Alpert, also known as Ram Das, loosely based on the Yvonne Wentz translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, okay? So that was loosely based on a certain translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which, which was a book called The Psychedelic Experience, A Guide for LSD Trips, all right? Written by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who were part of, by the way, you can go look this up, a group called the Harvard Psychedelic Club, which dosed people with LSD without their consent. Okay, and there's much documentation that this was part of Project MK Ultra. Uh, you want to dispute that? Go ahead, send me an email, and uh, I'll show you the documentation. Nevertheless, very easy to prove. Now, continuing on here, uh, Aldous Huxley, there's that name, introduced the Tibetan Book of the Dead to Timothy Leary. According to Leary, Metzer and Alpert, the Tibetan Book of the Dead is what? A key to the innermost recesses of the human mind, a guide for initiates, and for those who are seeking the spiritual path of liberation. Okay? They construed the effect of LSD as a stripping away of ego defenses, finding parallels between the stages of death and rebirth in the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the stages of psychological death and rebirth, which Leary had identified during his research. According to Leary, Metzer and Alpert it is, quote, one of the oldest and most universal practices for the initiate to go through the experience of death before he can be spiritually reborn. Symbolically, he must die to his past, to his old ego, before he can take his place in the new spiritual life into which he has been initiated. Okay, so this occultic experience of death and rebirth, birth, this is just a counterfeit of the reality. Okay, like we talked about earlier, Satan's not the guy with the red, uh, the red guy with the pitchfork blatantly jumping in your face. He's a counterfeiter, okay? He comes as an angel of light. He counterfeits things, okay? So this whole death and rebirth process is just a counterfeit ripoff of the born-again experience from the Bible that Jesus Christ talks about, that God says you must experience if you want to see the kingdom of God. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be born again first, no exceptions, okay? It's not the same as this death and rebirth. It's not the same. No matter how much people want to compare it to, it's not the same, okay? Uh, this, when people go through this experience, they may say it strips away your old ego when you die to self and all this other stuff, and you take on a new spiritual life, but it's not a life of righteousness. When they have, after they have these experiences, they're still living in sin. They're fornicating, they're drunk, they're getting drunk, they're taking drugs, they're living a wicked life. There's no change when it comes to morality and righteousness. It's just a it's just a um, psychological change in the way that they view the world and all this stuff. And um, but it's not what the Bible says. Being born again is it's totally different. All right. Now before we move on to the next influence on uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, let's think about this. So if the Tibetan Book of the Dead is a big influence on Carl Jung. Carl Jung influenced Joseph Campbell, and Joseph Campbell influenced George Lucas, created Star Wars, and George Lucas said he put all that philosophy into Star Wars. What does that mean? That means that the influence of the Tibetan Book of the Dead is in Star Wars. That's what it means. Okay? That's exactly what it means. All right, now let's continue. In 1924, Campbell traveled to Europe with his family. On the ship, during his return trip, he encountered Jiddu Krishnamurti. 
Okay. Very significant. They discussed, because he didn't just hear about this guy. He met him on a ship. They discussed Asian philosophy, sparking in Campbell an interest in Hindu and Indian thought. Campbell would encounter Krishnamurti several more times during the 1920s, but his last visit occurred in 1929 when he went to hear Krishnamurti speak in Eard, Holland. Okay? So, between 1924 and 1929, he had multiple encounters with Krishnamurti. Okay? And... That is very significant. Why is he discussed talking with this guy? He met this guy, had some type of friendship and relationship with this guy. Who is Jiddu Krishnamurti? Well, that is a very significant uh, point, especially when you consider um, Joseph Campbell's writings, like the Here with the Thousand Faces, which was used in movies, okay? I want you to pay attention to this. Let's read it. Jiddu Krishnamurti was a speaker and writer on matters that concerned humankind. His subject matter included psychological revolution, the nature of the mind, meditation inquiry, human relationships, and bringing about radical change in society. He constantly stressed the need for a revolution in the psyche of every human being and emphasized that such a such revolution cannot be brought about by an external entity, but be it religious, political, or social. His birthplace was the small town of Madanapal in Madras Presidency. Uh, he came from a family of pious Telugu-speaking Hindu Brahmins. His father... And his father, Jiddu Narayanaya, was employed as a official of the British colonial administration. Krishnamurti was fond of his mother, Sanjivama, who died when he was 10. His parents had a total of 11 children, of whom six survived childhood. Krishnamurti's father retired at the end of 1907 and, being of limited means, sought employment at the headquarters of the Theosophical society at adyar okay now before we continue uh in addition to being a brahmin narayanaya had been a theosophist since 1882 okay so he retired at 1907 and he started working at the Theosophical Society then but he had been a theosophist since at least 1882 okay now, why is that significant? Well, if you don't know who the Theosophical Society is, they are a group um, which was founded by a woman named H.P. Blavatsky, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. And she wrote um, some books, one of which was uh, The Secret Doctrine, another one was called Isis Unveiled, and a few other books. And basically, what did they believe? Well, they believed that Lucifer was good. That's what they believed, that Lucifer was good. And, um, you know, of course, there's a lot of other things that are tied together with their beliefs, but that's one of the main things that sticks out. And I'm going to offer you some proof about that. But wait till you see what else they believed. All right. So Krishnamurti's dad was a theosophist. And he was eventually hired by the society as a clerk, moving there with his family in January 1909. Naranaya 
Narayanaya and his sons were at first assigned to live in a small cottage which was located just outside the society's compound. Oh, it's always it's always a uh, good sign when you're moving to a compound, right? <laughs> when someone has a compound. In April 1909, Krishnamurti first met Charles Webster Leadbeater, C.W. Leadbeater, who was a 33rd degree Freemason, a very well-known occultist uh, who was also associated with Aleister Crowley. All right, so Krishnamurti met C.W. Leadbeater, who claimed clairvoyance, that he had psychic powers, okay? Leadbeater had noticed Krishnamurti on the society's beach at the Adyar River and was amazed by the most wonderful aura he had ever seen without a particle of selfishness in it. A Ernest Wood, an adjutant of Leadbeater's at the time who helped Krishnamurti with his homework, considered him to be particularly dim-witted. Leadbeater was convinced that the boy would become a spiritual teacher and a great order. Now check this out. The likely vehicle for the Lord Maitreya. Whoa, now, what are you talking about? And theosophical doctrine, who is that? An advanced spiritual entity periodically appearing on earth as a world teacher to guide the evolution of humankind. Wow. What does that mean? Well, if you guys don't know what Lord Maitreya is, uh, they just told you this master teacher, this world teacher, it's a... It's basically the Antichrist, okay? That's it. It's the Antichrist, okay? It's a world teacher to guide the evolution of humankind, the whole to teach the whole world, this spiritual figure that's going to teach the whole world. It's a Messiah figure, okay? That's exactly what it is. And this guy said that Krishnamurti was the likely vehicle for Lord Maitreya. Now, this gets crazy, okay? So check this out. In her biography of Krishnamurti, Pupil Jayakar quotes him speaking of that period in his life some 75 years later. The boy had always said, I will do whatever you want. There was an element of subservience, obedience. The boy was vague, uncertain, woolly. He didn't seem to care what was happening. He was like a vessel with a large hole in it Whatever was put in, went through, nothing remained. Following his discovery by Leadbeater, Krishnamurti was nurtured by the Theosophical Society in Adyar. Leadbeater and a small number of trusted associates undertook the task of educating, protecting, and generally preparing Krishnamurti as the vehicle of the expected world teacher. Krishnamurti, often often later called Krishnaji, and his uh, his younger brother, Nitya Nanda or Nitya were privately tutored at the Theosophical Compound in Madras and later exposed to a comparatively opulent life among a segment of European high society as they continued their education abroad. Despite his history of problems with schoolwork and concerns about his capacities and physical condition, the 14-year-old Krishnamurti was able to speak and write competently in English within six months. Lutian says that later in life, Krishnamurti came to, v- to view his discovery as a life-saving event. Often he was asked in later life what he thought uh, would have happened to him if he had not been discovered by Leadbeater. He would unhesitatingly re- reply, I would have died. 
Okay, so he's, he gives credit to this guy that he saved him. During this time, Krishnamurti had developed a strong bond with Annie Besant and came to view her as a surrogate mother. Okay, now Annie Besant, eventually, I believe, she came to um, take control of, yeah, she was one of the leaders of the Theosophical Society. It was H.P. Blavatsky, there was Annie Besant, and there was also Alice Bailey. These were different leaders, all women, that were leading the uh, Theosophical Society. So Annie Besant was one of them, and uh, in a little bit we're going to learn about what she believed. So Krishnamurti was actually came to view her as a surrogate mother. And his father, who had initially assented to Besant's legal guardianship of Krishnamurti, he'd agreed to give up his son legally to Annie Besant. He was pushed into the background by the swirl of attention around his son. And in 1912, he sued Besant to annul the guardianship agreement. Well, it didn't work. After a protracted legal battle, Besant took custody of Krishnamurti and Nitya. Nitya. She took his children away from him. Okay? So Krishnamurti became the child, the son of Annie Besant legally. The leader of the Theosophical Society. This is huge. Okay? And he's supposed to be the vehicle for Lord Maitreya. As a result of this separation from family and home, Krishnamurti and his brother became more dependent on each other and in the following years often traveled together. Quick side note, okay? So let's learn a little bit more about Annie Besant. Not long, but check this out. In 1902, she established the first overseas lodge of the International Order of Co-Freemasonry, La Droite, La Droite Humane. You know what that is? Co-Freemasonry is Freemasonry that allows women into it. Okay? Traditionally, regular Freemasonry is uh, doesn't allow women in it. They're only allowed to join like the Order of the Eastern Star. Okay? But she established the first overseas lodge of co-Freemasonry. Over the next few years, she established lodges in many parts of the British Empire. In 1907, she became... Okay, so she was a Freemason. And then in 1907, she became president of the Theosophical Society, whose international headquarters were in Adyar, Madras. Now, check this out. This is a quote. Here's what she believed about God and the teachings of the Bible. Here's a quote from one of her books from an autobiography, chapter 7. Against the teachings of eternal torture, of the vicarious atonement, and of the infallibility of the Bible, I leveled all the strength of my brain and tongue, and I exposed the history of the Christian church with unsparing hand, its persecutions, its religious wars, its cruelties, its oppressions. So she really hated the Bible. She hated Christianity. She hated God. Okay? And she adopted this uh, Krishnamurti guy to make him Lord Maitreya. And she didn't have a good influence on him. In 1911, the Theosophical Society established the Order of the Star in the East. Sounds like the Eastern Star. To prepare the world for the expected appearance of the world teacher. Krishnamurti was named as its head, with senior theosophists assigned various other positions. Members... Uh, membership was open to anybody who accepted the doctrine of the coming of the world teacher. Controversy soon erupted both within the Theosophical Society and outside of it, in Hindu circles and in the Indian press. All right. So then we're winding to the end here of this Krishnamurti guy, but check this out. Life-altering experience. 
At Ojai in August and September 1922, Krishnamurti went through an intense, life-changing experience. This has been variously characterized as a spiritual awakening, a psychological transformation, and a physical reconditioning. The initial events happened in two distinct phases. First, a three-day spiritual experience, and two weeks later, a longer-lasting condition that Krishnamurti and those around him referred to as the process. Very interesting term they use there. This condition recurred at frequent intervals and with varying intensity until his death. According to witnesses, it started on August 17, 1922, when Krishnamurti complained of a sharp pain at the nape of his neck. Over the next two days, the symptoms worsened with increasing pain and sensitivity, loss of appetite, and occasional delirious ramblings. He seemed to lapse into unconsciousness, but later recounted that he was very much aware of his surroundings and that while in that state, he had an experience of mystical union. Union with what? With who? This experience sounds nothing less than demonic possession, devil possession. This is exactly what happened to him. He was surrounded by these occultists freemasons and uh, theosophists he was surrounded by these people in the elite aristocratic society he these devils and these vultures were sucking the life out of him and trying to brainwash him with the stuff and they opened up these doors to these evil spirits to this kid is what exactly they did the following day, and hey, listen, you think that's crazy? You think that's stupid? He's describing the experience. And you can come up with your psychological explanation. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, the following day, the symptoms and experience intensified, climaxing with a sense of immense peace. Following, and apparently related to these events, the condition that came to be known as the process started to affect him. In September and October of that year, as a regular, almost nightly occurrence. Later, the process resumed intermittently with varying degrees of pain, physical discomfort, and sensitivity, occasionally a lapse into a childlike state, and sometimes an apparent fading out of consciousness. So he'd like pass out, explained as either his body giving into pain or his mind going off. Sometimes his mind would just shut off, probably like his eyes roll in the back of his head and he's just sitting there. He no, he's his brain is in a different wave state. You can't even talk to him. These experiences were accompanied or followed by what was interchangeably described as the benediction, the immensity, the sacredness, the vastness, and most often the otherness or the other. Sounds interesting. It was a state distinct from the process. According to Lutyens, it is evidence from his notebook that this experience of otherness was with him almost continuously during his life and gave him a sense of being protected. Protected by who? Protected by who? Krishnamurti describes it in his notebook as typically following an acute experience of the process. For example, on awakening the next day, he said this, quote, woke up early with that strong feeling of otherness, uh, of another world that is beyond all thought. There is a heightening of sensitivity, sensitivity, sensitivity not only to beauty, but also to other things. The blade of grass was astonishingly green. That one blade of grass contained the whole spectrum of color. It was intense, dazzling, and such a small thing so easy to destroy. This experience of the otherness would be present with him in daily events. It is strange how during one or two interviews that strength 
That power filled the room. It seemed to be in one's eyes and breath. It comes into being suddenly and most unexpectedly with a force and intensity that is quite overpowering. And at other times, it's there quietly and serenely. But it's there whether one wants it or not. There is no possibility of getting used to it for it has never been nor it will ever be. It's talking about, he's obviously talking about these spirits. As news of these mystical experiences spread, rumors concerning the messianic status of Krishnamurti reached fever pitch. As the, the 1925 Theosophical Society convention was planned on the 50th anniversary of its founding, there were expectations of significant happenings. Paralleling the increasing adulation was Krishnamurti's growing discomfort with it. In related developments, prominent theosophists and their factions within the society were trying to position themselves favorably related to, quote, the coming, which was widely rumored to be approaching. Extraordinary pronouncements of spiritual advancement were made by various parties disputed by others, and the internal theosophical politics further alienated Krishnamurti, okay? So that's all, leading, you had all these crazy experiences, and then this is the end right here, okay? This last section, this is the end. Obviously, you had weird supernatural experiences. Over the next few years, Krishnamurti's new vision and consciousness continued to develop. New concepts a- appeared in his talks, discussions, and correspondence, together with an involving evolving vocabulary that was progressively free of theosophical terminology. His new direction reached a climax in 1929 when he rebuffed attempts by Leadbeater and Bassan to continue with the Order of the Star. Krishnamurti dissolved the order during the annual star camp at Omen, the Netherlands. On August 3rd, 1929, he stated that he had made his decision after careful consideration during the previous two years and that, quote, I maintain that truth is a pathless land. And you cannot approach it by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. So he's just pushing that same view. Isn't this the same thing that George Lucas and Joseph Campbell have been put have been pushing? They say you can't. There's no one path to truth, and that there's no one religion or any sect that you can get to truth by. They're all valid. He said that is my point of view, and I adhere to that absolutely and unconditionally. Truth being limitless, unconditioned, unapproachable by any path whatsoever, cannot be organized, nor should any organization be formed to lead or coerce people along a particular path. This is no magnificent deed, because I do not want followers, and I mean this. The moment you follow someone, you cease to follow truth. I am not concerned. So how does he define truth? It makes no sense. It's a self-refuting statement. If someone says there's no way that you can find truth, ask them if that statement is true. If they say yes, then it's a self-refuting statement because then if that statement's true, then I just found some truth. And if I can find truth about statement, that statement, then I can find truth in other places. It's stupid. You can't say a, a true statement and say you can't find truth. It's dumb. Okay. But that's what these people push. It's postmodernism. It's relativism. It's starting. It started back here. Okay. Uh, he said, I'm not concerned whether you pay attention to what I say or not. I want to do a certain thing in the world, and I am going to do it with unwavering concentration. I am concerning myself with only one essential thing, to set man free. Free from what? Desire to set him free from all cages, from all fears, and not found, and not to found religions, new sects to establish new theories and new philosophies. Okay, so he didn't want any religions or anything like that. But uh, he... 
he doesn't say set him free from all these things right cages and fears what does that mean cages of what what he defines as a cage and what he defines as a fear someone else may define as something good so it's all relative um in in their mind it's it, you can be easily refuted unless you have an objective standard for truth like i said okay so the um like i said the bible says there's only one way he says you cease to follow the truth when you follow someone well jesus said i am the way and the truth and the life he said literally i am the truth follow me come take up deny yourself take up your cross and follow me but he said when you follow someone you cease to follow the truth jesus said you follow me because i am the truth so it's two totally different things. They're mutually exclusive. They're not saying the same thing. One's right and one's wrong. End of story. All right. Following the disillusion, the prominent theosophist turned against Krishnamurti, including Leadbeater, who is said to have stated the coming had gone wrong. <laughs> Krishnamurti had denounced all organized belief, the notion of gurus, and the whole teacher-follower relationship, vowing instead to work in setting people absolutely unconditionally free there is no record of him explicitly denying he was the world teacher whenever he was asked to clarify his position he either assented asserted that the matter was irrelevant or gave answers that as he stated were purposely vague okay so he tried to say on oh, he didn't try to answer that in later years during the 1930s krishnamurti spoke in europe latin america india australia and the united states in eight, 1938 he met aljus huxley there's that name again. The two began a close friendship which endured for many years. Okay? And they held common concerns about the imminent conflict in Europe, which they viewed as the outcome of the pernicious influence of nationalism. And finally, the last paragraph, Krishnamurti attracted the interest of the mainstream religious establishment in India. He engaged in discussions with several well-known Hindu and Buddhist scholars and leaders, including the Dalai Lama. Several of these discussions were later published as chapters in various Krishnamurti books. Those influenced by Krishnamurti including, include Tony Packer, Akyat Padwarandan, Dada Dharma Dikari, and Bruce Lee. Yes, the famous martial artist Bruce Lee. Okay, so this guy Krishnamurti. Wow, he had a crazy life. But he was raised given up for adoption legal custody to Annie Besant. And then she took custody, fought against his dad to maintain custody of him. And he was being raised up to be the world teacher, the Lord Maitreya, which is the Bible, perfect description of what the Bible says the Antichrist is. So this Messiah figure, uh, Joseph Campbell met and met quite a few times and they had plenty of discussions. Okay. Uh, and then Joseph Campbell writes his book. So what do you think about that influence on Joseph Campbell? That cannot be ignored in this discussion, okay? Krishnamurti's influence on Joseph Campbell cannot be ignored. He met him in person. He hung out with him multiple times, and they had talks. And what did they talk about? We have no idea. We might have some idea, but what we do know is what philosophy that Joseph Campbell came out with in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's pretty interesting when you take a look at it. All right. So we're going to take a, I'm going to take a quick break, come right back and we'll cover his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and we'll finish up the show here.
All right. Quick break. All right, we're back. And um, just to let you know, before I continue uh, commenting on that whole world teacher Messiah thing, um, Lord Maitreya, I, I, on the whole concept of the Antichrist and one world, one world religion, I am going to be explaining what the Bible teaches about that at the end of the teaching. Okay, so you, you get a thorough understanding of that at the end. Uh, just got to get through this information. All right, so now on to the book. Okay, so those are some of the big influences on uh, Joseph Campbell. You got Krishnamurti, uh, Freud, and Carl Jung with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, you have James Joyce, the Jesuit, Arthur Schopenhauer, Frederick Nietzsche, a both atheist and eugenicist, and all this other stuff. That's all packed into uh, Joseph Campbell's mind, and then he puts that into his books, and then that influences George Lucas and creator Star Wars. All right, so let's continue here. The Hero with a Thousand Faces. What is this book all about? Originally titled How to Read a Myth and based on the introductory class on mythology that he had been teaching at Sarah Lawrence College, The Hero with a Thousand Faces was published in 1949 as Campbell's first foray as a solo author. It established his name outside of scholarly circles and remains arguably his most influential work to this day. The book argues, this is the main premise of the book, the book argues that hero stories such as Krishna, Buddha, Apollonius of Tyana, and Jesus all share a similar mythological basis. Two points I have to say right off the bat. First of all, he calls Jesus a myth, which there are, as far as that whole, we're going to talk about that later too, the whole Christ myth theory um, is ridiculous first of all if you don't even believe if you're not even a christian just to let you know that position is untenable by most uh legitimate scholars they don't even make the claim most legitimate scholars don't even try to make the claim that um the person of jesus christ didn't exist historically uh so the whole christ mither movement is absurd okay so if you call jesus a mythological figure you are totally ignorant. Um, now, if you want to try to deny that he was the son of God and he had he didn't do miracles, okay, that's your position. But to deny that he even existed is really dumb. Okay, and you, you look like a fool. All right, now, well, that's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. All right, so it says Krishna, Buddha, all those, and Jesus, they're all the same, right? All similar. Not only did it introduce the concept of the hero's journey to popular thinking, but it also began to popularize the very idea of comparative mythology itself, the study of the human impulse to create stories and images that, though they are clothed in the motifs of a, of a particular time and place, draw nonetheless on universal eternal themes. Campbell asserted, quote, Wherever the poetry of myth is interpreted as biography, history, or science, it is killed. The living images become only remote facts of a distant time or sky. Furthermore, it is never difficult to demonstrate that as science and history, mythology is absurd. When a civilization begins to reinterpret its mythology in this way, the life goes out of it, temples become museums, and the link between the two perspectives becomes dissolved. Campbell explores the theory that important myths from around the world, which have survived for thousands of years, all share a fundamental structure. 
which Campbell calls the mono myth. In a well-known quote from the introduction to The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Campbell summarizes the monomyth. Quote, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day in a re- into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. In laying out the monomyth, Campbell describes a number of stages or steps along this journey. Okay, so you have two main points here that we're going to talk about. Okay, the first is the concept itself of the monomyth of the hero with the thousand faces is that there's this hero that's told in all these different religions, the Messiah figure that goes through the very, very similar things and very similar characteristics and that every different religion is just retelling the same story in a different way. So it's one hero with a thousand faces. That's the concept. Okay. And, and here's the thing. And then the second part is the hero's journey. So he actually describes what this hero goes through. There's all these different uh, stages of the adventure. We're going to read about that in a second. Now, before I get into that though, um, I would agree partially with this. Because most of the religions in the world do have similarities. They do. And their main Messiah figures do have similarities. A lot of similarities. Similarities. And uh, sometimes they use even the same exact symbol. For instance, the symbol, the six-pointed star, the hexagram, you can find that in multiple different religions. And uh, But anyways, beyond that, you can see that. And the only one that sticks out is Jesus Christ in the Bible. Now, many say that he doesn't. Well, two things. First of all, the Bible's very specific in the specific over 300 prophecies that describe uh, what Jesus would be like, where he'd be born, growing up, his life, his death, his resurrection, all these other things, very specific in describing him. And it is very, once you look at that picture, it's very distinct from all these other Messiah figures. But on the other hand, when we talk about the devil, again, he is a counterfeiter. And he's going to try to create as many counterfeits as he can to try to steer people away from the genuine article. All right, let's continue. The hero, so here's the hero's journey. The hero starts in the ordinary world and receives a call. By the way, this is the story that they push that George Lucas uses, this hero's journey. He put in Star Wars and all these other movies like The Matrix, they're putting this hero's journey in there. The hero starts in the ordinary world and receives a call to enter in an unusual world of strange powers and events. That's the call to adventure. If the hero accepts the call to enter the strange world, the hero must face tasks and trials, a road of trials. And may have to face these trials alone and may have assistance. At its most intense, the hero must survive a severe challenge, often with help earned along the journey. If the hero survives, the hero may achieve a great gift, the goal or boon, which often results in the discovery of important self-knowledge. The hero must then decide whether to return with his boon, the return to the ordinary world, often facing challenges on the return journey. If the hero is successful in returning, the boon or gift may be used to improve the world, the application of the boon, okay? So I can tell you right now how the Matrix follows this. 
Okay, real quick, the Matrix um, starts in an ordinary world. Okay, Neo's living in the Matrix, totally ignorant that he's in the Matrix, just an ordinary world. And then he receives a visit from some people. They tell him follow the White Rabbit, and then he receives a call to enter the unusual unusual world of strange powers and events. Well, he meets Morpheus. Morpheus gives it to, uh, gives him the choice: red pill or blue pill. And he takes the red pill and then he puts his finger in the mirror and then that transports him into the other world. Okay. And uh, goes to the adventure and then he learns about the matrix and then he learns how to trans train in the matrix to have special skills. That's a call to adventure. So he faced tasks and trials. He has to fight the agents and all that other stuff throughout the movie. He may have assistance. He has assistance from Morpheus and then he has to survive a severe challenge. At the end, he has to fight Agent that Agent Anderson. And then he receives a great gift. So at the end, he can stop bullets with his hand. He discovers the self-knowledge. He becomes the hero of the story. And they call him, in the movie, they call him the one. Like he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. And then you decide, return to the ordinary world and help people or not. So he returns... Back to that unplugging from the Matrix returns the ordinary world to use his skills to help everybody and return to the Matrix to help people. Okay, application of the boom. The boon. The Matrix follows this hero's journey. And they did it intentionally because they said they were influenced by the hero with the thousand faces. All right. Now, very few myths contain all these stages. Some myths contain many of the stages, while others contain only a few. Some myths may have a fo- as a focus only one of the stages, while other myths have made deal with the stages in a somewhat different order. These stages may be organized in a number of ways, including division into three sections, departure, initiation, and return. Departure deals with the hero venturing forth in a quest. Initiation deals with the hero's various adventures along the way. And return deals with the hero's return home with knowledge and powers acquired in the journey. The classic example of the monomyth relied upon by Campbell and other scholars includes the stories of Osiris, Prometheus, the Buddha, Moses, and they include Moses and Jesus in this. Although Campbell cites many other classic myths from many cultures, which rely upon this basic structure, the alleged similarities between these shared hero legends is one of the basic arguments of the Christ myth theory. That's what I talked about, the Christ myth theory, which by the way, the Christ myth theory is also used in the movie Zeitgeist. Okay, remember that that movie, that documentary that came out a while ago, Zeitgeist, then they had Zeitgeist Addendum and Zeitgeist moving forward, whatever they had. Okay, which is the crazy vision of Peter Joseph, who is a, he's a, an evil guy. Okay, why is an evil guy? He was, he's just super influenced by the um, Fabian socialist guys and uh, like um, Bertrand Russell. Oh man, he loves Bertrand Russell. And uh, he advocates this future economy called a um, resource-based economy. And uh, he believes in the abolition of private property, that people shouldn't even own their own cars. And basically these Google self-driving cars come pick everyone up and nobody, barely anyone even works. Who knows what they do all day? And uh, no one's allowed to have private property. Um, Guess what? That's one of the 10 um, 
pillars of communism is abolition of private property. That's like the number one pillar of communism is abolition of private property. So anyways, this guy made the movie Zeitgeist. In the first part of the movie, he tries to say Jesus is just like all these other myths. Well, the problem is it's a bunch of trash. Okay, first of all, one of the points he makes is they say Jesus was born on December 25th. Well, that's when they say uh, Horus and all these other false gods were born. He's just like all the other ones. Hold the phone. Stop it. That is ridiculous. Okay, listen, the Bible doesn't say Jesus was born in December 25th. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. The only reason that people say he was born in December 25th and they celebrate that as Christmas is because the pagans, like he said, and all these other religions, the false religions, they did teach that their gods were born on December 25th. But then the Catholic Church said, hey, We'll just celebrate Christ's birth on the same day and that'll appease the pagans and we can still celebrate Jesus. And they baptized paganism with Christianity, making Catholicism. Now, that's exactly what happened. If you don't know anything about that and you're shocked by those statements and you want to know more, go back and listen to my last video that I did uh, about Christmas, okay? The biblical case against Christmas. Now, in that teaching i prove all the things i just said and uh, a christian if if you're a christian you celebrate christmas you are giving fuel to these people that believe in the that push the christ myth theory because you're saying yes i celebrate christ's birth on december 25th even if you don't even believe that you know that the bible doesn't teach that you do it anyway and you add fuel to the fire Okay, instead of rejecting that and say, no, that's a complete lie. Jesus wasn't born December 25th. He has not that in common with these pagan gods. And now you just made a major distinction between Jesus Christ and all the other false gods. Okay, it's very important. And there are many other differences between Jesus Christ and these other false gods. Uh, and the first instance, what the biggest difference is Jesus Christ was sinless. If you examine the lives of these other gods and you, ex- and you examine what they did, they did evil, disgusting, wicked things. You look at Saturn, he and Kronos, he ate his own children. They committed incest and all kinds of da- nasty, disgusting sexual debauchery. Jesus was and is sinless big difference. Jesus Christ is not the same as any other God. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. All right. Now let's continue on here. Okay. Campbell used the work of early 20th century theorists to develop his model of the hero, including Freud, particularly the Oedipus complex, complex, which I said was the weird stuff of the sexuality with people's uh, the sons with their mothers and the daughters with their dads. He was a sick, sick in the head guy. And then, uh, so particularly Freud and Carl Jung with his archetypal figures in the collective consciousness, Arnold Van Gennep. Uh, let's see here. Campbell also looked to the work of ethnographers, James Fraser, Franz Boaz, and psychologist Otto Rank. Campbell called this journey of the hero, the monomyth. Campbell was a noted scholar of James Joyce. Okay. 
And then uh, Campbell borrowed the term monomyth from Joyce Finnegan's Wake. In addition, Joyce's Ulysses was also highly influential in the structuring of the hero with a thousand faces. Once again, James Joyce was a Jesuit, or Jesuit trained. Originally issued in 1949 and revised by Campbell in 1968, the hero with a thousand faces has been reprinted a number of times. Reprints issued after the release of Star Wars in 1977 use the image of Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker on the cover. We talked about that before, but it bears repeating, okay? They used Luke Skywalker on the cover of this book because they're telling you that Luke Skywalker is the retelling of this hero of the Thousand Faces story, the monomyth. That's who Luke Skywalker is. He is this Messiah hero figure that he is saying is in all these religions. That's who Luke Skywalker represents. Okay? The Masks of God. Of God. Published between 1959 and 1968, Campbell's four-volume work, The Masks of God, covers mythology from around the world, from ancient to modern, where the hero with a thousand faces focused on the commonality of mythology. The Masks of God focuses on historical and cultural variations the monomyth takes on. In other words, where the hero with a thousand faces draws perhaps more from psychology, the masks of God books draw more from anthropology and history. The four volumes of Mask of God are as follows, primitive, oriental, austenital, uh, and creative mythology. Okay, the book is quoted by proponents of the Christ myth theory. Once again, Campbell writes, it is clear that whether Accurate or not as a biographical detail, the moving legend of the crucified and risen Christ was fit to bring a new warmth, immediacy, and humanity to the old motifs of the beloved Tammuz, Adonis, and Osiris cycles, okay? Now, the Christ mythers like to use Joseph Campbell's work to push their theories, even though when you read the Bible... It shows many differences between Jesus Christ and Tammuz and all and Osiris and all these. It shows many differences, and um, and like I said, one of the biggest differences was that there were three hundred over three hundred prophecies written in the Old Testament, all predicting very specifically who Jesus Christ would be, where he'd be born, what he would do, how he would live, everything like that. And Isaiah fifty three predicts his crucifixion. Okay, what he would do, the atonement. And there is no such prophecy to the level of specificity with any of these false gods. Never, no way, no how is there any comparison. As and as far as the sinlessness, fulfilling the law, the Hebrew Torah, the law of God, he fulfilled that. Totally different than those gods. And the result, what he came to do, what did he come to do? He came, the Bible says, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He came to deliver people and save them, not only from going to hell, but also to not rescue from them from punishment, but also to deliver them from their sins, from the bondage and slavery of sin, because sin enslaves people. None of these false gods ever did that. None of these false gods ever did anything close to delivering people from sin. They give them different experiences, substitute and counterfeit experiences, but nothing compared to what Jesus Christ did and who he was and who he is. Okay? Now, that phrase crucified and risen Christ, that is important. 
because a lot of times in these false god myths, they have their Messiah figure dying and being resurrected. Okay, and that is important when it comes to the Antichrist figure. Okay, because the phrase Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. Anti also means substitute in place of a counterfeit Christ. Okay, like when you play poker, they you have people ante up. Okay, that word ante, it's a substitute for something. Okay, so that's what Antichrist is. So what the devil wants to do is he wants to counterfeit Jesus Christ, the real thing, in every way that he can. And that's what he's going to do. And he has to prepare people's minds, though, beforehand with predictive programming and teaching them all these stories over and over and over again and drilling them at not only through religions, but now using these religious stories in movies to program it into people's brains. And then they watch these movies over and over and over again. Okay. Luke Skywalker and other heroes of the movies all portray the same retelling of the coming man of sin, the Antichrist. Hollywood just keeps pumping out stories about the hero with the thousand faces. This is that Antichrist figure. It's the same story told in a bunch of different ways, and they keep telling it the same story in all these movies. Star Wars, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, all the superheroes, the Disney movies, the Matrix, all these movies that keep pushing it over and over and over and over again. And what is it? It's the hero with a thousand faces. It is the Messiah figure of all the world's religions, except for the true Jesus Christ of the Bible, who is very distinct and separate. Okay? They're teaching the hero with a thousand faces is the counterfeit. Jesus Christ is the real. And we know that by the truth of the word of God. Thy word is truth. The Bible also says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed. Okay? You do well to take heed to the more sure word of prophecy. It is more sure than even hearing the voice of God from heaven is this book right here, preserved for us today in the King James Bible. Okay? So this is the truth of the word of God that can cut through all the confusion and the misinformation and uh, the um, deception, okay? Now, we, uh, so that's what the hero with the thousand faces is, okay? And I think I'm gonna stop talking about that right now because we're gonna talk more about um, who the Antichrist is at the end. But let's get into, we got a, a couple of video clips to watch, okay? So stay tuned for this, check this out. We're gonna look at more of in general, Joseph Campbell's views about Jesus Christ and God, and he says some pretty wicked and blasphemous things. This man was a hater of God and of Jesus Christ, okay? And I'm going to show you proof with these video clips, okay? First clip, Joseph Campbell says the emphasis on Christ dying for our sins is wrong, okay? So check this clip out. And it can joyfully affirm this. This is one way, and this is the way that Augustine, in one passage somewhere, and I've forgotten where it is, reads the crucifixion. Jesus came to the cross like a bridegroom to the bride. That's to say, you come voluntarily. Eternity eter uh, participates voluntarily in the processes of time, which are of sorrow and death. 
And so he comes to the cross, which is the cross of life and time, voluntarily. And when you get that affirmative aspect, you've got a sense in Christianity that is heroic. The accent, however, has been on Christ's suffering and our sins of having poured their weight upon his shoulders and this poor, poor man, how he suffered for you. That's not it. There's the other crucifix. Of oh, really? That's not it? Christ's suffering for our sins is not it? How does he know that? Because he's applying his own occultic, mythological worldview on what he thinks Jesus Christ did? But we're going to see what the Bible says right after this. But listen to what he says. Of uh, Christ triumphant, with his eyes open voluntarily on the cross. And that's where we all are. And when you can identify yourself with that myth, you're released. Do you see what I mean? And this is then the bird flight linked to the... the By the way, that's what he's talking What he's talking about. When you identify yourself with that Christ triumphant with the eyes open and the light coming out, he you are released. He's talking about this occultic experience of death and rebirth and becoming a God. That's exactly what he's talking about. That we can all become Christ. We can all Christ is just an ascended master. All the gods of the religions of uh Buddhism and all the stuff, they're ascended masters. They became God. They attained enlightenment. That's what he's talking about. Serpent bondage in one one image. Quetzalcoatl. When the ego is capable of that participation in the crucifixion, then you are in the imitatio Christi. You really are in the imitation of Christ. And you've achieved the goal, I would say, of the Christian message. message. Thank you for that blasphemous statement, Joseph Campbell. And interesting, Joseph Campbell Foundation, what's the logo? Uh, let's see here. It looks like a little head here. And then we go around, and it's a tail... And then it looks like it's about to eat its own tail. Oh, I know. That's the Ouroboros. Yep, it's an occultic symbol of death and rebirth. And that's his symbol. Oh, what a what a coincidence. All right. Now, he's like, oh, that whole thing about Christ suffering for our sins and the sins being put on his shoulders. That's not it. That's not it. Oh, really? That's not it. Okay. How do you know that? Because you say that's we should just listen to you because you say that's not it. When how do we find out about Jesus Christ? Well, I don't know. How about the Bible, the Word of God, the God's revelation to mankind about who Jesus Christ is? This book's all about Jesus, folks. Okay, this book is all about Jesus Christ, and one of the best, most well-known prophecies about Jesus Christ is found in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, which, by the way, was written. A few hundred years before Jesus Christ was on earth, it prophesied of him to come and what he would do, okay? And this distinguishes him from all the other false gods. Now, what does it say of him? What does it say specifically of Jesus Christ? Well, it says this, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So right there, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. Okay? He was bruised for our iniquities. He was punished for our sin. He took the punishment for our sin. Look at verse 6. The, all we sh like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. God took our sin and laid it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, contrary to what Joseph Campbell said. Says here, verse 8, For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He died for our sins. Verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to pour out his wrath crush Jesus Christ in our place because he knew what it was doing. Verse 11, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Iniquity is sin, my friend. Jesus Christ bore our iniquities. He took our sin and then he took the punishment for our sin. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then he rose and he was buried and I'm sorry, he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches. That is the truth of the revelation of that God has given to mankind. And guess what? You can't even know anything for certain. You can't know any truth unless you have a revelation from a being of infinite knowledge. That would be God, the God of the Bible. God gave us the Bible, his revelation to mankind so that you can know truth. You can know truth. You can know truth. It's found in the word of God. And you don't have to be confused with all of man's opinions and speculations about all the nonsense. Okay? So what he said about Christ dying for our sins is absolutely wrong. and It's wicked. And why is he pushing that? Well, let's look at another clip where Campbell mocks God the Father. He calls him Yahweh. I don't use that word because it's not a word for God. The word is Jehovah. And he calls him a trickster for the Tower of Babylon, the Flood. Okay, so check this out. Check how Campbell hates God and mocks God. All right, let's take a look at this clip right here. There is a figure in American Indian myth that represents this power of the dynamic of the total psyche to overthrow programs. This is the, the negative aspect, and it's called a trickster. Uh, it's a very, very important figure in American Indian mythologies. In, uh, in the east, in the forest lands of the northeast and uh, southeast, it's uh, the great hare, a rabbit. Uh, when you go west of the Mississippi in the plains lands, it's coyote. You get up in the northwest coast, <coughs> and it's raven. These are smart, clever birds and animals. Now, it's a great puzzler to well-trained Christians to come across the trickster hero because he's both a kind of devil and fool and the creator of the world. And, uh... By the way, that is very much like uh, Gnosticism because the Gnosticism Gnosticism teaches that um, there is a evil god called the demiurge that created the world and created everything he created matter actually physical matter and that matter all therefore all matter is evil everything that exists everything physical including human bodies are evil and the only way to be um, liberated from that is through secret knowledge and then through you know releasing your soul from your body some and then some of these gnostics go so far as to believe that if you kill someone you're actually loving them and helping them by releasing their soul from the prison of matter evil matter 
Uh, but anyways, so he's 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 pushing this gnostic gnostic belief of calling um, the creator god a devil. So he comes in as an upsetting factor. He breaks through. He he even breaks through the notion of what a deity ought to be. And uh, this, I think, is about as good an example as you can find anywhere of the trickster hero. Now that trickster trait turns up in uh, deities like Yahweh. Yahweh's a trickster. He lets people build a building, and then because it gets to be to three stories high, he's afraid it's going to wreck heaven, and he comes down and, and, and floods the world. That's it trickster stunt that's a ridiculous act and uh we think okay uh <laughs> you're ridiculous uh joseph campbell first of all a couple couple corrections here uh that's not what the bible teaches first of all uh <laughs> i it's funny because this guy is supposed to be this well-respected scholar and oh man he's the expert in all their different religions and mythologies but he can't even get basic facts in the bible right he said that the tower of babel was like three stories high and god thought it was going to wreck heaven so he got mad first of all three stories high that's a gross under exaggeration the bible says that the tower reached unto heaven uh so the some some of the historical accounts say that the Tower of Babel was like a three days journey around the base of it so that they could build it um, tall enough to reach into the clouds. But hey, you, it uh, fits your narrative. But uh, regardless of that, did God get mad because it was going to wreck heaven? No, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with Nimrod was there. It was his kingdom. He was an evil guy. He was under. He was overseeing that project. All of mankind was working together, and it was a picture of of mankind's effort to get to heaven by his own works. And that is wrong. Okay? The Bible says that for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So God stopped them. It was the first one world government project and God stopped them, confused their languages. That's why it became known as Babel and scattered them from there and then they couldn't work together anymore because they were working together for something evil they were trying to find their own way to heaven instead of going through god all right now another basic fact that he gets wrong which is pretty embarrassing is he said god get mad that they were building the tower of babel so then he flooded the world um i think you got your stories backward there joseph because the world was flooded before the Tower of Babel was built. So if you go back here, you have in Genesis chapter 6, let me just get here so I can get some specific words for you. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, you have, in uh, verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, and then it grieved God that he made man, so he said he's going to flood the earth. All right, so then he did. Noah built his ark. Then God flooded the earth. And, uh, and then after that, the ark rested. And then, uh, and then they had children. And then what? We get to Genesis chapter 11, and that's when the Tower of Babel was built. The whole earth was of one language and one speech. Okay. The people is one. The Lord said, behold, the people is one. They have one language. 
And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Now, some people think that's good. Oh, nothing shall be restrained. They can do anything together. We can work together as a team. That's not what it means. It means they're not going to be restrained from doing anything bad. Okay? Look at human history. It's not filled with mankind doing good things. It's doing mankind doing bad things. Okay? Governments of the world in the 20th century murdered 100 million people. That's not good things. All right? So so God confounded their language. He stopped them from doing that. And then they stopped working together. That's what happened. But uh, he says, oh, God flooded the world because they built the Tower of Babel. Uh, first of all, you get that backwards. And second of all, you have the whole concept wrong. But then he mocks God, calls God a trickster. Why does he say that? God's a trickster. And then second of all, he says, it's a ridiculous act. It's a ridiculous act. Uh, he's judging God. He's acting like he's so much superior than the God of the Bible. And he's mocking God. It's ridiculous. When uh, he's saying that God doesn't have a right to judge his creation. And that's what it really boils down to. That God is evil because he judged mankind. Well, guess what? It says that mankind was only evil and the earth in his heart, uh, his thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. And he was, the earth was filled with violence. So everybody's murdering each other, robbing and raping and g- doing all this evil. What would Joseph Campbell do if he was God? He just let him keep doing it, right? Just robbing, raping, and killing. Who cares, right? Why why do anything about that? Oh, I don't know. It's a little thing called justice. That's why. And Joseph Campbell doesn't like that God to be a God of justice, and as well as a lot of other people. They don't like God to be a God of justice who has the supreme authority as the creator of the world to judge his creation when it commits acts of evil. And that's what happened. That's why God uh, wiped out all of mankind and the world with the flood, except for Noah and his family, because they were evil. Okay? The earth was filled with evil. And so God judged it. That's not a ridiculous act. It is a act of justice and judgment committed by a holy and righteous God, something with which Joseph Campbell knows nothing about. Okay? And, he, and it's interesting. I want you to keep in mind, too, remember the word that Joseph Campbell used, and that is the word trickster. Remember that phrase, that word trickster for later, okay? Let's finish the clip. It's quite normal for a, for a deity to behave that way. If a human being behaved that way, we'd send him to a lunatic asylum. So he's saying that uh, if God were a human, we'd send him to a lunatic asylum. So that God is a lunatic. He's a saint. That's what, and that's what he believes about God. And here you have the deity coming through as the, as the trickster, as the destroyer, as the disruptor of programs. Yahweh's full of this kind of thing. Yahweh's full of this kind of thing. And you see, he, you could hear, you could hear the tone, the change in the tone of his voice. He got really nasty when he started talking. About, he's like, he's ridiculous. He's a trickster. He's a, he's a lunatic. He really, you could see his hatred for God just manifesting. All right, and uh, you know, growing up, if he grew up as an altar boy, I can only imagine why he hates God. But I'm not going to speculate there. All right, now. Campbell said the trickster was the fool, okay, right? He said God's a trickster and the trickster is the fool, this character of the trickster. Now, what's interesting is the fool is a card in the tarot deck in the occult and also that Christ triumphant too. That's on one of those cards. 
Campbell clearly understands the occult and integrates the occult meaning of the Fool tarot card into his book, The Man with a Thousand Faces. His theme of the hero on a journey and many other views he espouses are simply a regurgitation of the Fool tarot card. Now, how can you say that? Well, I'm going to show you the proof, okay? How'd you know about this stuff, Nate? Are you a witch? I looked at tarot cards when I was lost. That's all there is to it. And for anyone to say, oh, well, well, I'm just not going to talk about it, right? Well, when you're lost, you do a lot of wicked things. Well, you know, there's fornication and drunkenness and lies and lust and stealing and all kinds of things. But hey, when someone talks about, hey, you know, I read this and I saw this when I was lost. Well, that's not a lot to talk about that. Even though it's teaching what is being pushed in movies that millions of people across the world are watching and being influenced by. And when someone points out, hey, uh, did you notice that this is like a tarot card? Oh, we're not allowed to say that. Well, I'll tell you who doesn't want you to know that. It would be the devil, okay? Because any Christian who'd be against that, you watch out for that person. There's something wrong with them, okay? Now, I'm not telling you to go get a tarot card and go study tarot cards. In fact, I warn you right now in no uncertain terms, do not ever buy tarot cards and bring them into your house don't ever bring a tarot card ouija board any occultic books in your house don't ever do that i don't do that and i don't recommend anyone else to do that but you know what's funny is there's some people that have talked against that and then they literally have on their desk in their church albert pike's book uh, Manly P. Hall's book, Marilyn Ferguson's book, sitting on their desk while they're teaching the Bible. Isn't that amazing that those people have the gall and the audacity to try to say something about someone else using some quotes from some occultic books? And you know what's interesting? You can get a quote from occultic books from online, from on the internet. You can lift a quote right out of there and you have to do nothing to do with the book. Now, I don't recommend anyone to go ahead and go start reading a bunch of occultic books. That's a bunch of trash. I don't recommend that. And I don't do that. Okay. But when it comes to studying one specific subject, one particular topic, you can go online. You say, okay, What did this person say about this? And that's all there is. There's nothing about learning incantations and rituals and and, uh, all these elaborate things of learning how to do witchcraft and, and learning how to do things in the occult. I don't recommend anyone do that. You don't need to do that. But there are certain points that can be learned and that are relevant to exposing and reproving the unfruitful works of darkness and uh, Satan's influence in society, okay? So I just had to say that really quick as a side note in case someone was confused. All right, now let's continue here. Occult meaning on the fool tarot card, aka the jester, okay? So this whole thing, keep this in mind, okay? The fool, the jester, the joker, the trickster, all these names is talking about the same thing, and this is all going to be tied together at the end, okay? Okay. 
So this is taken from an occult website explaining the tarot deck. It was called BiddyTarot.com, okay? It's talking about what the fool tarot card means. That's all it is, okay? It's not an elaborate uh, explanation of how to do occultic things. It's just what do they say this fool tarot card means, okay? The fool tarot card is a card of potential new beginnings and innocence. By the way, I'm not saying this. This is what they say. In the tarot... In a tarot reading, the fool represents the need to set forth on a new journey. Sound familiar? One that is completely unknown and will take you to uncharted territories. The fool is all about new experiences, personal growth, development, adventure. Okay? An adventure. The fool tarot card asks you to take a leap of faith and to trust in the universe. Totally unbiblical. Totally wrong. You don't trust in the universe. You trust in God, in the word of God. In that if you begin a new journey, you will find success. This fool lives a carefree life, free from worry and anxiety. He does not seem to mind if he does not really know what lies ahead. The fool tarot card may represent a choice to be made, one of vital importance. However, there are always many different opinions available and the choice must be made wisely. If you are facing a decision or moment of doubt, the fool encourage. Now listen to this. I'm not telling you to do this. This is what they're saying. The fool encourages you to believe in yourself and to follow your heart, no matter how crazy or foolish your impulses seem. This is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says that he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't trust your heart. Your heart will deceive you and it is foolish and it is crazy to follow your impulses in your heart. That is really dumb. Okay. It says he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. And they're literally calling the card a fool when it tells you what the fool does in the Bible. This is a time when you need to truly believe and have faith in where the universe is taking you. No, you don't. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's real faith. Okay, faith comes from the Bible, not from the universe. All right, what is the fool in, in Wikipedia? Okay, the fool it says in many esoteric systems of interpretation, the fool is usually interpreted as the protagonist of a story. In other words, the hero. Okay, like Luke Skywalker, he's the protagonist of the story. And in the major arcana is the path the fool takes through the great mysteries of life in the main human archetypes. The, this path is known traditionally in cardomancy as the fool's journey. It's the same exact thing as the hero's journey, okay? And is frequently used to introduce the meaning of the major arcana cards to beginners, okay? So the major arcana is a group of this big circle of cards and they take them when someone does a reading of these cards they take someone the path of the fool through this journey it's called the fool's journey well guess what the journey of the hero is taken from the tarot deck there was a book called a book called the tarot and the journey of the hero by hajo bonzoff here's the summary this full color profusely illustrated book provides an insightful approach to the 22 cards of the major arcana drawing on jungian psychology and his own considerable knowledge of esoterica bonzoff clearly shows how the major arcana of the weight tarot deck tells the story of the hero's journey it is the world's oldest story 
residing in her collective unconscious as women and men alike find themselves engaged in the heroic task of maturation. What did that author say? He said, the fool's journey in the tarot cards is the same story as the hero's journey, which is found in Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is pushed in the Star Wars movie and in all kinds of other movies. So what does that mean? It means Hollywood is teaching you witchcraft. Hollywood is taking you on the fool's journey from the tarot card deck and indoctrinating you and initiating you into the occult without your knowledge. And you are identifying with the protagonist, which is the fool, and you're going along with that journey with him vicariously. And you didn't even know it. And for further confirmation of this, 100%, let's just seal the deal with absolute proof. Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, admits he's playing this character. (coughs) Excuse me. He admits he is playing the role of the fool. He has been his whole career. He's the protagonist. Finally, for the nail in the coffin... Evidence that ties this all together and proves that this story of the fool's journey is exactly what they are doing in Star Wars and what Joseph Campbell was writing about in Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mark Hamill admits in a recent interview with Stephen Colbert about the new Star Wars movie that he has been playing the role of the trickster slash joker, jester, the fool for years and he likes it. That's exactly what he says. Check it out. He uses those words and he admits it. Listen, if you've, if you've played the trickster and the joker, as I have for so many years, the upside is nobody takes anything you say seriously. And that's a good thing, because it's liberating, you know? You're just, you're a jester. You're there for fun. And that's what I... I... He said, uh, by the way, he's played the voice of um, the Joker on the Batman cartoon. I didn't know that was started all the way back in the 90s. I didn't know if you guys knew that. He said, I played the role of the Joker, the trickster, the jester. What's great about that is no one takes anything you say seriously. The Joker, the trickster, and the jester. What is he talking about? He's telling you right there, what did, what did Joseph Campbell say? The character of the trickster. It says in the fool, the fool tarot card, what does it say? It says it's the jester. Okay. And uh, the fool, the jester, the joke, the joker, the trickster, it's all the same thing. They have the joker. Uh, guess what? The regular playing cards are based on the tarot cards. That's why they have the joker card in there. The Joker is the fool and the jester. It's the same thing. Okay? Now, he just admitted to you. Right there. He's playing that, and that's who he played in Star Wars as Luke Skywalker, and he was taking you on the fool's journey. Alright? Now, let's end with a couple quotes from Joseph Campbell. Uh, uh, As far as the section goes with Joseph Campbell, he says this. A few quotes from him, just short ones. 
Life is without meaning. You bring the meaning to it. The meaning of life is whatever you ascribe to it. Being alive is the meaning. Okay, so life is without meaning. Great. This is this is the guy who influenced George Lucas. God is a metaphor for that which transcends all levels of intellectual thought. It's as simple as that. I don't have to have faith. I have experience. The goal of life is to make your heartbeat match the beat of the universe, to match your nature with nature. Every religion is true one way or another. That's what he said. And that's what George Lucas said. It is true when understanding metaphorically, but when it gets stuck in its own metaphors, interpreting them as facts, then you're in trouble. And he says, all religions are true, but none are literal. Computers are like Old Testament gods, lots of rules and no mercy. Wow, he bashes God again. Uh, And that's not true whatsoever. The Bible says that his mercy endureth forever. And that was in the Old Testament, by the way. God had a lot of mercy and God was long-suffering to many nations that were evil. There were many nations that were raping and they were burning their own babies alive in the fire and God waited like a hundred years before he even judged them. Okay, God is very merciful and long-suffering, a lot more than mankind would be and is. And uh, But they, that's, they like to blaspheme God. And then he degrades the Western religions, Judaism in particular, for sharply distinguishing God from the world. The biblical image of the universe simply won't do anymore, writes Campbell. Okay, so clearly he was not a Christian. Uh, He didn't like God. He didn't like the Bible. And he said all religions are true. Called God a a mentally insane trickster. Okay? So he hated God. And this is the biggest, this God-hater who teaches about the Antichrist and the fool's journey in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is the biggest mentor and influence on George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. And then George Lucas from Star Wars said he put all of Joseph Campbell's philosophy and his views on religion, and he put it in the Star Wars movie, and he said, I'm teaching you, and I'm specifically teaching young people with a megaphone that goes across the entire world. That's the facts, Jack, and you can't argue with the facts. Okay, you can attack me all you want. You can call me names. You can say I'm stupid. You could say I look funny, but you can't argue with the facts. I just gave you all the proof. There's no arguing with it. Star Wars is a tool to indoctrinate the world and prepare their minds for the accepting of all religions as true, to accept the Antichrist in their heart, and to reject the God of the Bible. That's what it teaches. And it's not just Star Wars. It's Disney and Batman and uh, The Matrix and all these movies. They're all teaching the fool's journey, the hero's journey, the hero with a thousand faces. It's nothing less than the Antichrist. Propaganda. All right. Now, to finally end this teaching, we're going to review a few Bible verses about this and we'll end it. All right. Here we go. What does the Bible say about this hero? quote unquote, the thousand faces. Let's go on over to Revelation chapter 13. We'll read verses one through nine. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and 10 horns and upon his horns, 10 crowns and upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. Okay. So there's a beast and the beast, which I saw was like unto a leopard and his feet, like as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, if you're wondering, oh, I don't know. You're thinking, well, you take this literally? What are you talking about? Uh, The Bible defines it, okay? Whenever the Bible gives a symbol, it defines the symbol for you, okay? When it says there's a beast, then the Bible says this beast is a king or a kingdom. That's what a beast represents. You go to the book of Daniel, it says this is a 
this beast is a king or a kingdom, okay? Uh, and it says, I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So what does that mean? He was wounded to death. That means he died, and then his deadly wound was healed. He was resurrected, and all the world wondered. They were amazed by it when he was killed and resurrected. This is that dead and risen Antichrist figure based on these other figures like Tammuz. Tammuz used to go down to the underworld. The women would weep for Tammuz until he came up from the dead because after the summer solstice, the days would get shorter and they said that Tammuz went underground uh, and that he was reborn around the time of, uh, what's it called? Winter solstice, you know, Christmas time. All right. They're weeping for Tammuz to be resurrected. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking. Uh, okay, sorry. So they said, I skipped a verse. Verse four. And they worshiped the dragon. The dragon is Satan, by the way, because there's another verse in the Bible that says, um, it talks about the dragon. It says, who is the devil and Satan? Okay, so it defines it. They worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given, a, okay, so this beast is the Antichrist, and all everyone in the world worships the, the Antichrist, okay? And they say, who can fight against him? Who's like unto him? He's different than everybody. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy, so he's going to be blasphemous. And power is given unto him to continue 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, kind of like Joseph Campbell, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given, given him over all kindred, tongues, and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. Revelation 13, 1-9. Now, what did it just say? Everyone in the world is going to worship the Antichrist, the beast, and whose names are not in the book of life, meaning those people who are not Christians, who are not saved. If you're not saved, you're going to worship the beast. You're going to worship the Antichrist. You're going to take the mark of the beast. You are going to worship him. The whole world is going to. So what does that mean? You think that Satan isn't trying to prepare the world for that? Absolutely. He's preparing the whole world to accept this Messiah figure, the beast, the Antichrist, and he's filling their minds with this here with a thousand faces mythology in order to prepare everyone for the worship of Antichrist. That's what this is all about. Okay. What are the consequences of worshiping the beast? Well, let's read about it. Revelation 14, verse 9. And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. If you worship the beast, the Antichrist, and his image, if you take the mark of the beast, you will go to the lake of fire where you will burn and be tormented for all of eternity. Okay? 
with the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb. It's not separation from God. It's in his presence you will experience his wrath. Okay? Because you loved your sin and you hated God and you'd rather live a life of sin and choose that than accept Jesus Christ to repent and turn to him and be saved. You wanted that instead. Now is the time to make your choice. Repent and believe the gospel today. Get saved today. Not uh, after you die, there's going to be too late then because after that point, your character is fixed. You've already made your decision. You've already revealed what you were going to do. Okay. The Bible warns about being deceived by the power of Satan to worship the beast. Okay. This is a very strong warning. Okay. Right now, the, there is a very strong push to deceive the whole world by the power of Satan so that you will be prepared to worship the Antichrist. Look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come the coming of Jesus Christ, shall not come except there come a falling away first. That's the apostasy when most all of Christianity will apostatize and they will turn away from the Bible, turn away from sound doctrine and truth and look at what's become of it. The churches have turned into uh, entertainment centers with a bunch of clowns and it's a bunch of nonsense. Okay. And they're not teaching the Bible anymore. Let no man, there come, except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Who's the man of sin? The Antichrist. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay? He's going to be worshipped as God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now ye know what that what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Who's that wicked? That's the Antichrist. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. God's going to destroy the Antichrist. Jesus Christ is. Even him. Who's him? The Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The Antichrist comes after the working of Satan. He comes after Satan's been using his power and signs and lying wonders to deceive people. And some of the ways that he uses it is through movies and music and other ways of pushing philosophies on people to accept this Messiah figure. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Okay? The only reason that you're going to worship the Antichrist in the future is if you don't love the truth. Okay? You love lies that make you feel good because you want to live in sin. But if you love the truth, you'll repent, believe the gospel, and you'll get saved. And for this cause... For the cause of people not receiving the love of the truth. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, some people say the strong delusion is to believe that aliens, when that aliens will come and they'll believe in aliens and all that stuff. I don't believe that's the context of this whatsoever. The strong delusion is 
that they will be deluded into accepting um, the Antichrist as God. That's the strong delusion. And God allows them to believe it because they didn't love the truth. They didn't want to believe the gospel. So here you go. Here, worship the false Messiah. Because they believe not the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. They had pleasure in living a life of sin and rebellion in God. They took pleasures of that. Hebrews chapter 11 says it's the pleasures of sin for a season. The pleasures of sin is only temporary. Okay, ask the it's you live this life, you can party it up, sin, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but then you die and the party's over, and you're never coming back, you're never getting another chance, and there's no exits in hell. Okay, the time of salvation is now before you die, and you don't know when you're gonna die, and you're not promised another day, you're not promised next week, you could die tomorrow, you could die tonight of a heart attack, and if you're not saved by the grace of God, if you haven't been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will go to hell if you die, and that's a scary thought, friend, and you should think about that. You shouldn't treat it like it's no big deal. It's a light thing and you'll just put it off tomorrow. Well, guess what? If you try to trick God out of it and try to gamble with your soul and say, oh, I'll repent on my deathbed, God will kill you the day before you think you're going to pull that nonsense because he knows what's in your heart and he knows all things. Don't think you can fool God because it's not going to work. Okay? Now, repent. what's repentance mean? Repentance means you're sorry for your a life of sin, not just one sin or two sins, okay? A life of sin. You're sorry for your sin. You hate your sin because it's offended God and separated you from God and you want to turn from it. You're willing to turn your back on a life of sin for going in that direction. You don't want that anymore and you turn to God. You turn to Jesus Christ and then you put your faith in him. You trust him alone. And you trust in the fact that he died for your sins. He took the punishment that you deserve. He took your sin. And he obeyed the law of God. He's perfect, endless. And he's died as a sacrifice for your sins. That he was buried. That he rose again. And that if you will uh, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, that he died for you, you will be saved. If, you're, if you confess, you trust in him alone for salvation and that you don't trust in your own works, you don't trust in, in you trying to be a good person or trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments are just to show you what your sin is. Okay, by the, by, the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? It's not by any of your own works or giving to charity or any such thing. That's not how you're saved. Not by being baptized. It's not by going to church. It's by repenting of your sin, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're born again. That's how you get saved, okay? And that's the only way to avoid worshiping the Antichrist, taking the mark of beast, and going to the lake of fire. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, okay? Like I said, Satan is transformed into an angel of light. He comes to you in a very deceptive, appealing form. Star Wars is appealing. Luke Skywalker is appealing. He's supposed to be the whore, the, the sorry, the hero. He's a he's a he's a character that you like, you identify with. He's supposed to be on the side of good. He's against Darth Vader, right? And that's supposed to be evil, right? No, because they turn everything around backwards to mess with your mind. It's a mirrored world of insanity, okay? He is transformed in angel of light. Luke Skywalker is 
represents the Antichrist. That's who he is. Okay? And you are being brainwashed to identify yourself with that and to like that character. He's the Savior. Okay? When the Antichrist comes, he's going to wave in on a ride of a, a wave of chaos. Okay? World war economic collapse, famines and pestilences and all this stuff. And he's going to come right in and he's going to fix these problems. Okay. He's going to cause peace to happen in in Israel. He's going to cause all, he's going to solve all these problems and he will be, and he's going to die and and be resurrected. And people are going to worship him as God. He's going to worship him as the savior. That's what they're going to do. Okay. That's how Satan comes, as an angel of light. Not as openly evil and wicked right in your face. It's deceptive. Open your eyes and see the truth. It is very dangerous. Okay, you need to wake up and see this. It's all around you. It's in front of you. You have the blinders on. You watch all this entertainment. And after 10 minutes of walking watching television your brain goes into a different state it's like alpha or or the theta state some other brainwave state where you stop critically analyzing the information and it just comes right in and you don't even uh judge it critically you just accept it okay you don't even realize what's going on you need to wake up this stuff is being used to indoctrinate you okay unplug yourself from this this that, you know, that is one analogy that they used, the matrix, that it is like they've created this illusory world, this world of illusion to deceive you. Okay? You need to step out of it, see the truth. And the only way to do that is through the word of God. Okay? Word of God, thy word is truth, the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the truth. Okay? You need Jesus Christ, you need the word of God, and he said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if the Son shall make you free, therefore ye shall be free indeed. Jesus came to set the liberty, the captives at liberty, to set the captives free. The captives of sin, the captives of deception. He came to show you the truth. Now all you have to do is accept it. Stop living a life of lies. Stop listening to lies that makes you feel good. You want to escape reality. Face it. If you get saved, you will have peace, joy, and love that you've never felt before in your entire life. Okay? I'm pleading with you. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ today before it's too late. And if you're a Christian and you're watching this, stop watching Star Wars. Stop watching all the other Hollywood filth. Turn the TV off. Turn the Hollywood off, all that other junk, get your head in the Bible. You got plenty of other things that you could be doing. Doing, reading the Bible every day, praying, studying, getting tracks, handing out tracks, witnessing to people. You could be doing all kinds of things, okay? Doing some, do some radio shows like this, whatever it is. Get the gospel out there, get the truth out there, okay? There's plenty of things you can be doing except instead of wasting your time watching this stuff and being influenced by totally unbiblical antichrist philosophies. That is absolutely wrong. Luke Skywalker's not Jesus. Superman's not Jesus. They're the antichrist. That's the bottom line, okay? And I showed you the proof. And that's it. And like I said, I'll link the, link the notes in the description. There's a little other. I don't recommend, by the way, this guy here, Thomas Horn. It's a little article by him. I do not endorse Thomas Horn, but... This little thing that he wrote had a lot of truth in it. Star Wars film 
depicts New Age Messiah, so you can read through that. And the Francis Ford Coppola thing, that the guy that influenced George Lucas, he finances pedophile director knowingly. So you can go look at that. I got a link to that, okay? But otherwise, that's the end of the show. I know it was a long one, but it was a lot of information that was necessary to cover. And uh, please like, share, and subscribe. And uh, check out the other videos, and we'll have more coming. I'll probably do another one on the Star Wars as far as the Force goes. I got other shows coming up about uh, altered states of consciousness, trans states. I got one about Romans 14, Christian liberty, uh, whatever. A bunch of stuff. More about music. Got one, some in the works. Okay, I'll, the Lord's going to leave me about which ones to come out with when, but uh, they're in the works. So stay tuned. Please pray for me and my family. Uh, got a lot going on. Got a lot going on in my life right now. Good things. And uh, with my job, everything's going really good. So thank you. Praise the Lord. Thank you for leaving, the, uh, listening and watching. All glory goes to God. None to me. I must decrease. He must increase. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And all glory goes to him. All right, thank you. And um, I think that's it. Also, my email, I'll leave in the description. You want you got any questions, send me to send that uh, to my email. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. All right, thank you for watching and have a good night. God bless.